for We Are Many podcast. I'm your host and comrade, Rob, and um, we've got a pretty big show today. Trisha? Hello and welcome. This is Trisha Moffat speaking. This is Sarah in my face space, and uh, we're looking forward to enjoying this evening with you. Austin? Hello, everyone. My name is Austin. I'll be running for uh, Congress in 2024 under the Green Party. Uh, that's about it. Thank you. We're going to start off today's stream with a special Left Unity segment. We're going to be talking about eco-socialism and uh, why, in my opinion, it's necessary. We have a special guest, uh, Cody, from the Youth Eco-Socialist Caucus of the Green Party. If you want to introduce yourself. Yeah, hi all. Uh, thanks so much for having me. Uh, my name is Cody Hanna. I am the elected chairperson of the Arizona Young Eco-Socialist Caucus. Aren't you uh, also involved on the, in the National Caucus? I am, yeah. I also serve on our uh, steering committee nationally as the uh, media committee chair, which is uh, a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Is there anything you want to say uh, diving into this, or should we just dive right into the questions? I'm cool if we just dive right in. Let's go ahead. All right. So who are the Youth Eco-Socialists? So the short answer is, is we are people aged 14 to 35 who are Green Party supporters, members, activists, people who are trying to move towards a more democratic, socially just, peaceful, and ecologically sustainable world. Okay. Um, what are the youth eco-socialists doing? Uh, so right now, uh, our attempts are mostly to uh, get the word out about our policies, try and get our candidates elected uh, to local, state, and federal offices. Um, here locally, we're working on a lot of uh, mutual aid, direct action, and education projects at the moment. Um, yeah, just kind of trying to spread the message and, and get people on board with eco-socialism. Okay. 
Um, that's a perfect lead into the next question. What is eco-socialism? And why is it the answer to capitalist catastrophe? Sure. So uh, my personal definition for eco-socialism is it's more of a uh, sort of a catch-all for a combination of political ideologies that, you know, draw from Marxist and anarchist beliefs and uh, believe in the protection of our ecological habitat and of the planet. Um, basically, the belief is that capitalism as a system, because it is based on inherent continued growth and exploitation will inherently result in the exploitation of the planet and of course the climate change and climate catastrophe the catastrophe that we're currently seeing now um, so what eco-socialism presents is that we can solve the climate catastrophe we're facing by uh, really leaning into uh, a socialist mode of production and and making sure that community decision making is localized as much as possible um, indeed, I totally just realized, thanks to Austin, that I didn't let Vicky introduce herself, and I am so sorry. If you want to go ahead and do that now, Vicky. Uh, it's, right. it's all right. I'm Vicky. Um, ready to hang out? Have to learn something? That's it. Go ahead. Back to you. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I, I just wanted to throw my two cents in. Uh, in my opinion, what eco-socialism is is undoing the damage that's been done by capitalism. Um, in short, that's that's my personal definition of it. Um, I also wanted to bring up the book, Eco-Socialism, A Radical Alternative to Capitalist Catastrophe. I bought a copy of it. I'm about two chapters into it. Um, so far, it's compelling. Um, eventually, we're probably going to talk about it. <laughs> Anyway, how long have you been a community activist? Um, so I really got interested in politics at a pretty young age. You know, I grew up uh, an LGBT kid in a fairly conservative state. So my existence here was sort of inherently political. Um, and that really got me in, interested and involved in, in causes for social justice, uh, things of the sort. And, you know, as I got older and had some more life experiences, uh, a little more education, you come to realize how interconnected all of our different struggles are. And that, you know, to just sort of play whack-a-mole with, with singular social problems is not going to to solve the uh, the greater issues that are structural and systemic in, in nature. But yeah, you know, I think um, my real activist experience came from uh, joining the Yes Caucus. Uh, I joined in September of 2020 as just, you know, I had been a Bernie guy uh, in 2016. Uh, you know, uh, obviously that didn't work out um, for a variety of reasons. Um, I had supported the Green Party in the past. Uh, I, I supported Jill Stein's 2016 run. Um, but I hadn't really taken the step to really get involved. And I came to a point in my life where I'm like, okay, you can sit here and be a keyboard warrior and, and, and just shout into the void, or you can get involved and you can try and do something that way you can say, at least, even if everything else, you know, goes to hell, I tried to make this world a better place. So that's sort of the, the resolve that keeps me going and, and doing this work. That, that makes sense. Um, so you kind of answered the next question already. How'd you get involved? Um, 
I also wanted to just say that I too was a Bernie supporter in 2016 and uh, also in 2020. I was very briefly involved with his campaign before it was ended. Um, in 2020, I mean. Um, but yeah, pretty much uh, I voted Jill Stein in 2016. Um, and came back to the Green Party as soon as they screwed Bernie over again, which we all knew was going to happen, but we had to have hope, right? <laughs> uh, so that brings me to my next thing. What's your political ideology? Yeah, so uh, I've definitely evolved a lot in the past, you know, couple of years. Uh, I definitely started out as, as you know, the Bernie bro Radlib, uh, social democracy all the way. Um, but as I, I did a lot more uh, educating myself and, and reading a lot of theory and a lot of different perspectives on, um, you know, the left as a whole, uh, the ideology that really sort of resonated with me most was uh, that of social ecology, libertarian municipalism, uh, you know, bookchin adjacent communalism, that sort of uh, uh, change in the top-down structure of how we organize our decision-making and governance as a society. Okay. Um, so how do, how do people get involved with the Ufico Socialist Caucus? Yeah, so uh, if you are between the ages of 14 and 35, um, we need you. If you care about the same things we do, if you care about grassroots democracy, peace, social justice, ecology, and you're in the Arizona area, please, please, please get involved. You can go to our website at uh, www.yesgpaz.org. Uh, you can find us on pretty much all the social medias, uh, Twitter at yesgp underscore az, Insta at yesgpaz. Facebook slash SGPAZ. And, you know, there's a million ways for you to get involved. We have events uh, at least once a month, sometimes two or three a month. Um, the best thing you can do is really just show up, show up, ask questions and, and be willing and able to learn and listen and, you know, get into this, uh, this fight with your comrades. Fair enough. Um, so, like, what about people outside of Arizona? Like, what if uh, there is no Ufico Socialist Caucus in the state that uh, somebody listening is in? Yeah, so uh, we have a couple of states right now that are sort of uh, in that area. Um, our accredited caucuses right now at the national level are, I believe, us here in AZ and uh, New Jersey. We also have caucuses that are uh, springing up in places like North Carolina, California, Texas. Um, the biggest thing you can do if you don't have this sort of youth organization within the Greens or eco-socialist uh, faction in your area is to start one, you know. Uh, when we started it here, it was pretty much just myself and uh, Colette, our current vice chair, who is also the chairperson of uh, Green Party of Pima County. And we had both gotten involved in the Green Party here and found that, it, you know, it was it was a little harder than we had expected to have youth voices and, and the voices of, uh, you know, the people you would think that would really be uplifted in that organization uh, to really have that sort of say. So we came to a point where we basically decided that, hey, this doesn't exist, so we're going to create it. And it starts with like one or two people. You find one or two people that agree with you that want to do this and you can connect to the National Caucus, which is pretty easy. We will help you get that started in your area. 
that's that's awesome so like if somebody's too old like uh, not to point any fingers but some of the people on this call um if you're too old to get involved with the uh, youth eco-socialist caucus how can you help how can you support or how can you promote eco-socialism on your own yeah so you know uh, a big part of uh, my ide ideology and, and especially historical green ideology is like we're stronger if we're a, a, a federation of groups that are sort of working on their own thing in, in cooperation with each other rather than, you know, having to put everybody in one group to do one thing. And uh, I think the really big thing is like even if you don't fall into certain identi identity caucuses or identity groups or whatever for organizing, um, that building those coalitions between the ones that do exist that you can be a part of is really, really the big thing. That and anything you can do to share and spread the message, uh, especially from young people and people of color and LGBT people who are doing this work right now is super, super helpful. Fair enough. Um, so I just want to, okay, so during our streams, we usually interact with the comments on Facebook. So I just wanted to, uh, Take a second to shout out Emily, Natalie, Calvin, and uh, welcome, guys. Thank you for thank you for being here. <laughs> uh, what are the youth eco socialists doing in Arizona? Yeah, uh, so right now we've been putting a lot of work into uh, some educational resources. We've been putting on uh, some seminar events that talk about our key values. Uh, the most recent one being about grassroots democracy, um, sort of touched on how our democratic system works now and some of the changes that Greens and eco-socialists want to see. Things like rate choice voting, uh, proportional representation, that sort of uh, reform. And, you know, it, we also talked a little bit about um, democracy in our communities and at work too. So those are those are very important key values to us. So we talk a lot about the things that matter to our party. Um, we also have uh, some direct action and mutual aid stuff that we're trying to uh, get set up over the next couple months. Uh, trying to partner with uh, Green Party of Mar Maricopa County on some demonstrations in uh, you know June, July, maybe August, depending on the weather. Um, yeah, a lot coming down the pipe. So <laughs> it's just a matter of uh, getting everything going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what's happening with the caucus at the national level? So at the national level, uh, basically, the way I like to think about the national level of the Youth Caucus is our purpose there is really to give young activists a place to sort of get their feet wet in the world of third part, third party politics and, and political organizing. Um, our, we really want to give people the skills within the Youth Caucus to do things that they would find themselves doing on the committees of their state parties, uh, the, of their local organizations. Uh, things like that. So it's really about giving people skills and educating them to be the best organizers and activists for the green movement that they can be. Okay. Um, what are some of the policy plans that the youth eco-socialists um, are standing behind or trying to promote within the Green Party? Yeah, so uh, one thing that has been, you know, uh, if you pay any attention to National Green Party news that has been a little contentious is uh, the issue of trans and non-binary identities. Um, you know, we've had some issues in in the Georgia Green Party and other places uh, with 
you know, the use of, uh, of feminism of a certain type to uh, really be used as a weapon against trans and non-binary identities. And we're really, uh, we make a point of, you know, being on the side of trans and non-binary people. We make a point of being on the side of sex workers, which, you know, is not a hugely popular opinion, uh, even amongst the Green Party. Uh, we've had to fight for that. Um, yeah, uh, mostly other than that, it's a lot of the uh, general left policies. You know, we all obviously agree we need health care for all. We need housing for all. We need clean water, good food, clean air. Uh, but yeah, other than that, it's, it's really just sort of um, trying to push a left party even further left, <laughs> which is always a good time. <laughs> Isn't it, though? Uh, well, I think our chances are a little better than, you know, the Democratic Party. But <laughs> what what do we want to change within the party or without outside of the party? So I think within the party, at least what I want to change, I think there is a, a generation of Greens who have been doing this for a long time, uh, who are, are the remnants of what was in the 1960s, the new left movements, uh, the eco-feminist movements, things that have been going on for a while that just never really got off the ground in the way that they probably could have. So really part of what we're trying to do is, is A, give those people a rest, but B, really push a new generation of, of young fighters for the working class, for the for the planet, you know, for all these policies that we desperately need that we've been working on for you know, a hundred years in some cases, like uh, with healthcare for all in America, um, but really just trying to get that energy, especially from youth people, uh, people of color, people who are generally apathetic about the political process here in the United States to be involved and to be active and, and for everybody to feel a certain amount of duty to be, at least in some aspect, politically active to fight for their own rights, because that's the only way, it's the only way we're gonna get anything, you know, we all have to fight. Yeah, I mean, really, uh, at this point, it's almost like we have to take direct action literally for our lives. Um, All right, and that's one thing I would love to point out um, and show some appreciation for what you guys are doing there, because you can't truly achieve actual equality, true equality, if you were leaving out any group that is being oppressed. You can't be, you know, approaching something going, I'm fighting for equality. Well, oh, wait, I'd like to be a turfy motherfucker. No, we can't have that. We can't have that shit at all. This has to be inclusive. And this is where um, I think it's very important for a lot of people to start to learn about intersectionality because we really do all need to come together and fight together for all of our rights, regardless of gender, identity, race or ethnicity any of those things across the board because so long as we allow even one person to remain oppressed we're not actually fighting for equality i agree uh one of the things that i want to say it sorry i thought you were done I, I just think I, I just I love that that is inherently a part of your platform to make sure that this is as inclusive as possible so props yeah um i i also really enjoy that the first meeting we ever had it was it was very broadly uh stated that we all believed that electoral politics alone aren't going to fix it 
Um, so, you know, like we're trying to practice dual power essentially. And I think that's important. Um, so that was, that was part of what drew me to the youth eco-socialists specifically, as opposed to the green party more generally. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think, uh, at least in my own view of what I would hope for this organization to be, you know, maybe even in 10, 15, 20 years is, is really that, you know, that people's assembly for, for lack of a better term, where we can come together and all have a, a vested uh, interest and shared, shared responsibility to our communities and, and use that sort of body to maybe push for a, a more electoral thing at the very municipal level at first and build from there. But I think, you know, a lot of people and in the Green Party included, uh, I think maybe have their eyes set on bigger, bigger prizes than we can claim right now. When really, if we build the power both within the system we already have and outside of it to make it obsolete, I think that is that is really the best path, path for us moving forward as a, as a broader united left. Fair enough. Um, so, how many veterans are, are involved in the Youth Eco-Socialists and have, have we made an effort or do we plan to, to reach out to vets specifically? Um, so, in the Arizona chapter, nobody that I know of is a veteran. Uh, I would have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly, we only have about nine to ten active members right now we're still pretty small we're still getting off the ground um nationally i know in the youth caucus there are uh several people who have done uh military service of some kind um and a lot of those people because they've done that service have fairly uh you know anti-imperialist views because they've been on the first the front line of it you know um and i think those are the people that we can really find some solidarity with who have been unfortunately exposed to the worst aspects of that and are generally when they come back are are not treated as well as they should be okay that's fair uh what do you think about um the the military say that we cut the budget in half and brought all our troops home what what are your thoughts on keeping the military intact but using them for more i guess for lack of a better way to put it good you know, like having them fix infrastructure or things like things of that nature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, in the Green Party platform, I believe our official wording is cut the military budget by at least 50 percent. Um, I think it could be more than that, frankly. Uh, I think that a lot of the budget for our military is not going towards things like, you know, health care for our veterans, uh, benefits, protections, that sort of thing. They're going towards lobbyists. They're going towards weapons manufacturers. That's the sort of thing that all this money is being wasted on. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, to not to not think that that budget is bloated at this point in time, I think is naive at best. Um, and, and I would definitely support, I think that if we want to talk about our military's purpose being to keep us safe, well, the biggest threat to national security that's coming down the line in the next century is climate catastrophe. Mass climate migration that's going to have yeah. a bunch of other implications, global famines, those are things that we're going to have to be able to deal with and prepared. 
And, uh, and capitalism can't, can't do that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's just not equipped for that. Um, so Calvin asked, is the eco-socialist what came out of Howie and Angela's 2020 campaign? I would say yes and no. Um, I think that that definitely steered this in that direction with the Green Red Alliance and the Left Unity campaign. But uh, eco-socialism is definitely pushed by Howie, but it's separate from him also. I think he just woke up that wing of the Green Party. Yeah, uh, and some of the, you know, some of the history behind that, you know, in the original founding of the Green Party U.S., uh, essentially there were two different factions. One was a little more liberal, a little more like the European Greens, and the other was a little more explicitly socialist, anarchist, communalist, that sort of uh, split. And uh, as I know the history, uh, the socialist anarchist bit decided that they wanted to focus more on direct action, mutual aid, things like that. The liberal faction really wanted to focus a little bit more on elections and, and winning campaigns and that sort of thing. Eventually leading to uh, an amalgamation of the two where really the more liberal side of the Greens took control of the Green Party US for uh, a pretty decent amount of time of its short existence. And we're just really now seeing the uh, the eco-socialist wing really swing back into into uh, the larger aspects of power within the Green Party, whatever little there is. <laughs> right? Right. Um, yeah. So, uh, I'm not quite sure what Calvin means. He said, uh, were Georgia Green Party kicked out of the system or new Georgia leadership there? I don't really know anything about what's going on in the Green Party of Georgia. If you do, by all means, yeah, so that is, uh, that's an ongoing vote uh, in our national committee. The basic uh, premise of that is that the Georgia Green Party endorsed what was called the Women's Sex-Based Declaration on Women's Sex-Based Rights, which was inherently just really trans and non-binary phobic. It's not something that uh, a lot of us in the Green Party Federation agreed with. And so there is a current uh, decision being made within our national committee space as to whether to disaffiliate them from the Green Party US Federation. Gotcha. I'm and the curious, answer to that. Um, what things were proposed with that and uh, what aspects were they failing to be inclusive? Where could you? those things to maybe be able to push that forward sorry could you repeat that one more time um sorry my my signal might be cutting out some um i i was asking uh what things are lacking what exactly was proposed there with that and what things were lacking that was making it not inclusive how do you propose fixing and addressing those things in order to make it more inclusive yeah, so uh, the way I understand it, there were certain provisions in this, like saying, uh, you know, fighting against uh, puberty blockers for, for children under a certain age who, who are experienced body dysmorphia, um, that sort of thing. There was, you know, a whole spiel about women's restrooms and, and participation of transgender youth in, in women's sports, that sort of language is something we want to distance ourselves generally from in the Green Party, but there are unfortunately certain holdouts like Georgia. Um, and you know, there was the way 
it was told to me is that there was about a year long mediation process trying to, you know, get people to understand that like, Hey, this is not what we stand for. You know, this goes against our, our core pillar of, of social justice and, and, you know, is not something that we can, we can defend. And unfortunately the folks in the Georgia green party, uh, we're not as uh, ready to to compromise on that. So it is it, it is an ongoing battle, and and hopefully we'll see some results here soon. It's looking like the uh, discreditation or disaffiliation is is going to be likely, um, and hopefully we'll have you know uh, a group of Georgia Greens who are on the side of inclusivity and equality who are are ready to reaffiliate a new group as the Georgia Green Party. Absolutely, because. It- Dude, from the sound, that shit sounds like Republican talking points. Not anything that should be coming out of anybody's mouth on the left. Yeah. Exactly. Maybe you have some Republicans who have infiltrated the group trying to have a negative influence or something, because that's the kind of shit I would expect to hear out of somebody who is, like, vehemently Republican and, you know, that not to knock anybody for their beliefs or anything, but the the evangelical religious shit that is like, oh, we must protect women and children in bathrooms. Get the fuck out of here, man. I, I've never seen a single case of a trans person attacking anyone in a bathroom. You know who I have seen lots of cases of people attacking in the bathrooms? It's older, straight, white males that are also, for some reason, tend, tend to be, you know, Republican and on the evangelical side of things. And it's like, you need to look at your own instead of looking over here, because it's something that's literally never happened. Um, you know, I, I, I don't get where they pull these arguments out of thin air of like, there's no reality basis for this. It's never happened, but we think it might happen. So we need to write some fucking, you know, anti-trans laws to prevent something from happening that doesn't occur. It's fine. So um, I wanted to, to throw a shout out to the people in the comments. If anybody has any questions for Cody, or I guess for myself, we're both involved, but this is more an interview with Cody. So uh, if, you, if you have any questions about the youth eco-socialists, um, you know, throw them out in the comments on Facebook. But uh, while we wait for the for the responses, um, as a resident of Arizona, what are your thoughts on the activists that want an independent first responder unit for mental health instead of sending police, aka defund the police? Yeah, I mean we're we are absolutely on board with defunding the police as as a as a hope that we can reach some kind of democratic community oversight of whatever defense apparatus exists in our communities. Um, Personally, my own belief is I don't think we need the police. I think that crime is a result of social and material conditions uh, that are going unaddressed. And I think that, you know, like I was talking about a little earlier, you can't just whack a mole with symptoms and not deal with the root cause of the problem, which in many cases is lack of opportunity, lack of jobs, lack of education. Those are the sort of things that we need to address if we want to stop crime rather than continue to put police who are inherently violent, racist, classist as an institution into our communities. That doesn't make us safer. So we really want to address those root causes of crime and what drives people to, you know, uh, go about 
uh, acting on a social ill um, because it's not nobody is inherently a bad person in my view I don't think anybody is seeking out to commit crimes because it's fun to do so I think crime is is definitely a result of people's conditions and if we address those conditions therefore you would have less crime I vehemently agree with you yeah yeah I was gonna say that was that was better worded than mine would have been uh, you you kind of briefly touched on it but I also wanted to point out um, part of Howie and Angela's platform was community control of the police and I think that at the very least that that's where we need to start and at that point if communities are like hey this isn't working out you know then they can further defund the police or disband them um, Ultimately, I think the, the best course of action to get there is community control of the police. Well, and we can definitely look to it, you know, uh, other examples that, you know, share similarities with our green ideologies of how they're uh, doing community defense. One example is in Rojava, where uh, the community defense, the people who would take the place of police officers are, you know, they're democratically elected from the community. They rotate through. Uh, if they're constantly uh, encouraged to critique their own performance and have their performance critiqued by the community and public assemblies. So there's way to do ways to do public safety and community defense that are, are inherently different from the white supremacist, classist, racist version of policing and community safety that we have today. Fair enough. Um, so Calvin asked, how many candidates are running in 2021? I don't know if he's referring to the Youth Eco Socialist specifically or the Green Party as a whole, but either way, do you have any idea? Um, off the top of my head, I know we have uh, Connor Mulvaney, who is running for uh, city council in Pennsylvania. I want to say Pittsburgh City Council in Pennsylvania. I believe that's 2022. Uh, we also have Destiny Clayton, who is uh, a young eco-socialist member who is running for governor of Michigan. Uh, We've actually uh, had her on. She was initially part of our, our group here. But, uh, you know, life got in the way and she hasn't been involved in a while. But we are, we are familiar with Destiny. We've all had conversations with her. Yeah, yeah, Destiny. <laughs> She's got my support. Absolutely. Uh, just to clarify, my home state is Michigan, right? And Trisha and Don, who isn't currently here, and Dean, who isn't currently here, are all from Michigan. So um, the Michigan ties in this group are pretty deep. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, I'm an Ohio boy, so we're pretty close. Fair enough. Uh, what were you saying, though, Trisha? I didn't mean to interrupt you again. It's gone into the ether. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> Shit oh, happens, bro. <laughs> I don't know where the thought went. Up and smoke. I got a question for you, Cody. Uh, what do you think about dr drug reform and stuff like that? Absolutely. I, I, I think that, you know, <laughs> the idea that we can stop people from using drugs or substance of some kind, uh, which we've been using for thousands and thousands of years, going back to like the Neolithic era, is just, 
not not feasible. I think the best method is to you know make things as safe as regulated as possible and and you know especially if you look at places like Portugal that are doing things like they have traveling uh, needle exchanges and that sort of thing. Drug use is going to happen. What we can do to stop it is to try and curb, again, just like crime, the, the social and economic reasonings for drug use of certain kind that d destroys families, um, and, and to encourage the, the safe and, and educated, knowledgeable consumption of drugs like uh, cannabis and you know uh, psychedelic mushrooms. I have no issues with that. Um, I think the best thing we can do is just make it as, as safe and have our population be as educated as possible about what they're taking. Again, well said. Yes. What do you think about the prison system that we currently have in the United States? <laughs> How much time you got? Uh <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, it is, you know, it blows my mind every day to just think of the magnitude of people we incarcerate in the United States and, and, you know, just the, this absolute hurdles we jump through to incarcerate people from working class communities, more often than not black and brown communities. Uh, it's just, it is a, an entire industry at this point in our, in our late capitalist hellhole, uh, that just thrives on suffering and and cruelty and i think we really need to you know i've i've heard from many people that i talk about prison and police abolition with that oh that's a lofty utopian goal you know if it's utopian to not keep more people in in the worst conditions we could keep people in our society than has ever existed on the planet before then I'm a utopian, you know, <laughs> then I don't think that's a bad thing. But I think if you view that sort of ideal as utopian, then that that is that concerns me. I mean, to be fair, though, Engels said that socialism should be both scientific and utopian. Why? What what is with the negative connotation on utopian? Because they think it's unattainable, and that's what they're trying to get across with even using that word, as if having a, a utopia where really quality exists, etc., that, that it's unattainable. And that's not true. It's just a lot of work these lazy motherfuckers don't want to do. I believe very firmly in, in the principle of hope. I think that is, if anything has kept the left globally relevant at all is the ideal that we can still make the change that we need to make sure everyone has a decent and dignified life. And I, I worry about anybody who, who purports to be a leftist who isn't still in touch with that principle of hope. I, I don't think we get very far without it because we got a tough road ahead of us. You know, there's a lot of work to do. Uh, we are very, very short way on the way of our way towards a, a more egalitarian, ecologically sound society. Um, and if we don't have hope, you know, we're not going anywhere. Damn straight. That's a thing. Um, the, the people who are trying to naysay, uh, that's just their own insecurities about the situation. That should never hinder you from doing the work that you want to do to help bring that about because that hope is exactly what will keep up the resilience dealing with all the shit that we have to deal with until we get enough people broken free from their apathy 
to help do something about it with us? Um, I, I'm just curious, actually, I can't believe that in our own conversations, this hasn't come up, but like, do you plan on running for office anytime soon? I, I have batted the idea around. Uh, I think that's where I'll land on that. <laughs> no commitments just yet, but, uh, I won't cross it off. Are you going to do local or are you going to do, if you would do, say, would you do local or would you do more like a federal? Uh, I think local politics is really where, where the left has to start to get any sort of in-ground. So I think that would be, that would be my, my potential campaign if it ever comes about, but we'll see. Yeah, I mean, I agree, you know, like the Corporation Commission here in Arizona, that'd be a good target. Or city councils, school boards, you know, like literally start at the fucking bottom and turn the system upside down. That's that's where I'm at with it. Um, I, I shot for the moon. <laughs> uh, okay, so I guess we'll go into... Uh, more actually, uh, Calvin has another question. What is your view on the more corporate green parties like Germany and the UK? Um, so here's the thing the global green movement, while we do share uh, certain values, there are definitely parties that you know exist on different parts of the spectrum of, of like leftism. You know, there's the German greens and and which are experiencing, you know, a, a decent boost in approval. I think I read something recently that it was looking like they had a good chance at the next chancellorship in Germany, which, you know, that's awesome. And that's um, unheard of, really. They've been on the fringes. Yeah, you know, I think, um, frankly, although we disagree on a lot of things, some of the more liberal green parties do serve a purpose for us more radical green parties, and that is to, to really uh, make the idea of voting for an independent Green Party a little less scary, you know, especially as we see these these wins come in from uh, the Green Party of UK. Um, you know, in Scotland they had some great gains. I believe there was somebody in London who just got elected to a council seat who is 18 years old. Um, so it really, it really, I think the PR aspect of that is good. Um, I think the ideological stuff we can hash out for the most part. Uh, but well, as far as I'm aware, the German Greens support a global Green New Deal. And I mean, honestly, that's like the make or break thing for me. Yeah, uh, I, I think a lot of the concerns come around some of the Green parties of like uh, Meso and Southern America that are... Uh, a little more right wing like if if you ask people in mexico about partido verde you're probably not going to get the same response as you would if you ask people about the green party in the u.s uh but there is a lot of variation and we're trying to really you know build coalitions where and wherever we can all right uh well i guess it's time to move into our first segment for today other than well i guess that was a segment too you know what i mean we're talking about the shit that's happening in our own country. Um, I don't even know where to start with this, so I'm just gonna read the headline and we can, we can dive more into the details in a minute, but there were at least nine mass shootings across the US this weekend. What's everybody's uh, first thought on that? What the fuck, people? 
Actually, when I clicked it, the headline has been updated. There were at least 10 mass shootings across the U.S. this weekend. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, a gunman opened fire at a family fucking birthday party. What? In Colorado Springs, yeah. Yeah, in Colorado Springs on Sunday, leaving six people dead in a community in mourning. Uh, these 10 mass shootings combined left at least 73, or, whoa, 17 people dead and 33 more wounded. Uh, according to CNN reporting and an analysis of data from the Gun Violence Archive, local media and police reports, CNN defines a mass shooting as an incident with uh, four or more people killed or wounded by gunfire, excluding the shooter. This weekend's shootings provide a glimpse into the rise in violence that began last year and has continued ever since. Criminology experts have pointed to a perfect storm of factors, including economic collapse, COVID-7. We are waiting to hear from authorities uh, in Boulder, Colorado, the scene whoa. of what is apparently the second mass shooting in less than a week. Sorry, I didn't expect that. <laughs> Um, COVID severing of social connect connections and mistrust in police. Um, the Colorado Springs shooting, the suspected gunman believed to be a boyfriend of one of the victims also died. Words fall short to describe the tragedy that took place this morning. From the officers who responded to the shooting to the investigators still on scene, we are all left incredibly shaken. Um, Philadelphia saw 14 shootings. Uh, one of them was a mass shooting, apparently. Phoenix, actually. Uh, Cody, I don't know if you heard about this. I assume that you probably have. There was a shooting uh, last night at Hyatt Regency Hotel, downtown Phoenix. Yeah, I did see that. Um, one man dead, seven wounded. Um, a group attending got into an altercation that resulted in gunfire. All of the victims were between 18 and 22. Uh, Woodlawn, Maryland, there was a report of an active shooter and fire scene at a townhome community. This one's crazy. Investigators say the suspect lit his residence on fire and forced his way into his neighbor's home where he then shot and stabbed them. He shot two more neighbors as they came out of their home, including a 24-year-old who died. What the fuck? told you it was crazy. He was then shot by officers and taken into custody after refusing uh, and later died in the hospital. There was three separate shootings in California. In LA, one person died and five others were uh, injured. Um, on Saturday, four people were injured in a shooting outside of a nightclub in Citrus Heights. And that same night, more than 400 miles away in Compton, uh, police were in the area when they heard shots fired. Deputies found two men, believed to be 15 to 20 years old, dead at the scene, according to a news release from the L.A. Sheriff's Department. Holy shit. Uh, Newark, New Jersey. Four people injured in a shooting in Newark on Sunday. Two men and women. Two women. Two men. Holy shit. And two women were injured by gunfire. Uh, with any information, call fucking one eight seven seven. NWK tips. I don't think we have any listeners in New Jersey currently, so I, I don't know why I gave the number. But anyway, Milwaukee uh, shooting that injured four people. The victims, ages 23 to 45, all suffered non-life-threatening injuries. That's good news, at least. 
Two men have been uh, arrested in connection and the charges will be forwarded to the prosecutor's office in the coming days. Then St. Louis County, Missouri, two people are dead and three others injured after a shooting in a park. <sighs> 10 shootings, 72 hours. This is where we're at in this capitalist hellscape. I think it's a good reason for Medicare for All. Medicare for All and mental health, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we need mental health care in this country. And I mean, on this podcast, we tend to be, how shall I say it, quite gun friendly. Um, Yes. But that being said, as far as I'm aware, all of us on this podcast, while being quite pro-Second Amendment, also understand and support common sense legislation, background checks, mental health checks, red flag laws. These are common fucking sense things. Yeah, and people that uh, have medical marijuana cards should be able to (laughs) own guns. Sorry, (laughs) I just had to bring that up. Yeah. Uh, It... UBI would help with that too, I think. I think a lot of these cases that, uh, like Cody was saying earlier, that, you know, a lot of these things that happen happen because people are stressed from poverty or lack of. Uh, so I think UBI would help people out where they wouldn't have to do some of these things. I think we also need to consider like just the uniqueness to the culture of violence that exists in the U.S. that is long standing. You know, uh, I, I'm very much of the belief that you can look into history and find the reasons for anything that is going strange today because, you know, sort of with the social ecologist thinking, you know, as we expand as part of the second nature which is like human society first nature being uh you know just evolutionary processes we are we are not separate from from nature in that regard we are just an expression of it and when we have a development among ourselves as humans as the the very few beings that can really take our reality and our our biosphere around us and and change it to our own whims uh recently you know as far as global history is concerned we've really uh really you know kind of screwed the pooch on that values wise um and so it it as much as it saddens me it doesn't surprise me really that we have this culture of of violence instead of you know cooperation and 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 community community building which i think would go a long way to to changing the culture in the u.s but that all starts you know that starts at the local local level. That starts with talking to your neighbors, making sure your your people in your block are are doing okay, and if they're having mental health problems, that they have some way to get get help. And yeah, it's it's tough, you know. It's really tough. It is a large undertaking, I think, to to combat the inherent violence in the U.S. system. I agree. Like you said. Uh, uh, I, I believe that's like community outreach, uh, making sure people are okay and everything that goes along with, uh, helping them with food or clothes or mutual aid, you know, uh, letting people know that you care about them. So, um, I think, uh, well, first of all, I want to catch up on comments a little bit. Natalie said, we mean, we need more leftists in all areas of government. Local is a great place to start. And 
As for what we're talking about now, she said it's becoming the norm in the U.S., sadly. And she added, the young grade school girl that took a handgun and shot three students, thankfully nobody died, but one of them was a young grade school girl. Um, one of these shootings, so. Now, Is that the trans girl? Honestly, I haven't been able to keep up with all of them. I think that was the trans girl that was being bullied. Wouldn't you kind of blame that on the parents? I, I mean, I don't want to sound like that, but obviously the gun wasn't hers. She's grade school. I mean, right. that goes along with gun safety and everything. I mean, I'm going to say yes and no with that just as a single mom. And I've always had to work insane hours and still be there for my kids as much as possible. You can teach yeah. and teach and teach, but if they're really going through something and like, I'm working 16 hour days, six days a week. I, you know, they don't have the, they're not around me when they want to talk to me about what's really going on like that. You know, I mean, it wasn't the case with my kids, but um, it's hard. It's hard to manage all of that time and to do all that other stuff. And if she was really feeling some type of way, oh, yeah. then, I mean, you got to take that. You can't blame it on the parents. Blame yeah, that's what I'm saying. But I mean, if they didn't have it in a, a lock case or, you know, something. Yeah, like that's yeah, I behind that's... their locked door. But I, I mean, I, I get you there. My mom couldn't control us at all. So I've had a rough childhood and I did things that I probably shouldn't have. So we all did. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just to further elaborate on what we're already talking about, there have been on average 10 mass shootings in the U.S. every week in 2021. There has been 194 mass shootings in the United States this year, 18 weeks into the year. It was 106 last year at this time, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't consider 18 really an adult. I mean, I know by law, 18 year old is an adult, but. Not here. But they're allowed to go to the army and they're allowed to go overseas and then they're allowed to kill people over there and have guns and stuff like that. And I don't want to sound like fuck, uh, 80s mom or something and say it's, we're, we're literally desensitization of, of the American cult or the American people. I mean, it's literally I, I, I've i watched some stuff that we probably shouldn't be able to watch. Uh you know, you, you can watch these, if they're videotaped, you can watch these things on uh, the internet now. You We have access to them and it's just like, you see somebody die like that and it's kind of, it kind of takes the, oh my God, out of you, you know, or, you know, what the fuck kind of out of you and it replaces it with, a, uh, uh, oh, oh, okay, I, another another one happened, you know. But I guess that goes and it stems back to mental health and, you know. Well, it's normalization of something that should never be fucking normalized because we are so exposed to it. It happens so frequently that, you know, it has literally become normalized for a lot of people. This is just the shit that multiple generations have now grown up with. I mean... I, I'm almost 40 and I was still in high school when like it started becoming a thing to have school shootings 
specifically, you know, and you'd think we would have gotten something done in the last 20 some years <laughs> to maybe start to move in the right direction with this, but we're not. We're seeing more of it. Well, that what the fuck? Their, their uh, way to solve it was uh, introduce more guns into schools, like give teachers guns and, or put police in schools. It wasn't. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, I remember that. Okay, the, the giving teachers guns, I can kind of fucking understand like a little bit. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I can at least understand it. But putting police in schools, are you fucking kidding me? They're too trigger happy as it is. They also right. get paid extra for being in schools. They, they get paid more. It's like overtime for them. When they, uh, I've known a couple cops that were actually had to, you know, do that, go into schools and stuff. Uh, but, and we, we should have literally thought, well, maybe it's mental health instead of spending the money on all this other, you know, not, not to mention that during all this that happened, we're cutting school, the school budget, you know. We're literally cutting back their money. Uh, more and more kids are in a classroom, which I mean, I don't. That, I think that's terrible to begin with. Then you feel when you're in school. I remember you feel left behind. You feel like you don't matter, and it, it, it dwells at you, you know, and it it really gets to you. And uh, I don't know. So Natalie said, uh, we definitely have been desensitized to violence and death by violent means. But I would like to point out, though, that uh, we have been desensitized to, uh, to it on a mass scale pretty much. But yet we're still taught that if somebody commits a violent act as, say, a direct action, that they're a terrorist. So we glorify violence if it's if it's meaningless violence or if it's violence out of anger but if it's quote-unquote righteous violence then it's wrong it doesn't it doesn't it, it how is that not a contradiction that we have uh grappled with yet or who it's done by yeah I mean, you you look at all these uh police shootings and stuff and now us the far left you know we we see that as wrong and we we know that defund the police ultimately abolish the police is the correct move to do the correct way to go but you see a lot of the right still defending the police even though you know law and order in the thin blue line yeah even though yeah. january 6th they're the ones that attacked the police and it wasn't defend the police then was it no but it's only correct when they do it or how they do it instead of you know just being wrong in general all the time. Yeah. Um, Calvin said, looking forward to uh, our interview on Friday. Um, I will be going on his show uh, to do an interview about For We Are Many and who we are and what we're trying to do. Um, he is also, I'm not sure if it's going to be this Monday or not, um, but uh, either next Monday or the Monday after he's going to be on our show talking about mon modern monetary theory uh, which if you're not familiar with I, you should be and uh, that's part of why we want to do this interview so uh, hopefully we can move, to, move forward together um, anyway so 
I got a story from 2018 that I want to talk about. It happened in Milwaukee. Does anybody know the name Adam Trammell? Um, Calvin just put in the comments uh, the, the link to his podcast and YouTube channel. Um, so if you're interested, go in there and click the links. But uh, does anybody know the name Adam Trammell? Because I didn't either until, I forget if it was last night or today, but it was one of the two. Um, he was a schizophrenic man. He was having a breakdown. A neighbor called 911 to report that she had seen him naked in the corridor talking about the devil. Um, so he would take showers to help him calm down. And he was in the shower and the police showed up and told him to leave the shower and he did not leave the shower. Um, they tased him 15 times in the bathtub, by the way, power and water don't fucking mix. Um, then more officers arrived and they dragged him naked from his apartment. Uh, and then they held him down and injected him with sedatives, uh, midazolam at first and then ketamine. Moments later, Adam stopped breathing. He was taken to the hospital, pronounced dead soon after arrival. The date was 25 May, 2017. Um, we only know about the event because the incident was uh, caught on body, body-worn body cameras, which should be mandatory everywhere. And if you turn it off, you lose your job, point blank. Um, but he was a young black man who was schizophrenic and they killed him. I am not going to show the body cam footage on air because it's fucking triggering. Um, but there's the article to the story in the comments. Um, if you want to see what happened, check it out on your, on your, um, how much medical training do they have? Probably fucking none. You know, to administer drugs like that. Right. Yeah, can you can you pull up the, the DA report that was included in that article? Because I have a couple points that I think were interesting. Uh, yeah, yeah, I will in a second. But I just wanted to point this out. Um, this is just from 2018. It's completely unacceptable. This is why... Uh, we were talking about how here in Arizona activists are pushing for a mental health response first responder unit rather than uh, sending the police. And this is why this is necessary. This is this is fatal incidents. This isn't every incidence. This is the one where the police killed somebody with a mental illness just in 2018. Actually, I remember this one in Saginaw, Michigan, very clearly that happened uh, just before I moved out here. But um, yeah, I'll bring up the DA's report in just a second. Uh, they have no right to, to, they shouldn't even be allowed to respond to those kind of calls. Right. Cody, I'm actually not seeing the DA report in here. I swear it was though. Maybe, was it, was the other, maybe it was the other article. 
it might have been the other article, but I remember I was reading through it and it was like, it was talking about, it was going through, oh, these officers showed up to a call about somebody who was having a mental health episode. And they said immediately in the first bit of that, it was like they, what the one officer had their taser already drawn before even going into the apartment. So first things first, that is just not conducive to like solving this in a way that make sure nobody is harmed right like if you're i i don't understand the reasoning and if you look down if we do end up finding the deer report in the it, article, it was the other article i see yeah this one was about the medical examiner's report and such yeah and, and the i i have a lot of questions about this excited delirium uh, uh cause of death because i think that is interesting given the other context surrounding this being that he was tased what 15 times and in also a matter of 10 minutes in the shower and also beaten by what was it three cops on the scene when they first yeah. got there it was the two in the bathroom the one that was outside the door yeah um i still don't see the actual report but in a may 4th 2018 interview with uh wisconsin Pu public televisions here and now Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm described it as a significant and dangerous medical condition that requires immediate attention. So, like, referring to excited delirium, obviously. It describes a physical and mental state that has been cited as a cause of death uh, in dozens of officer-involved deaths across the United States in recent decades. Its symptoms include agitation, sweating, increased body temperature, unexpected strength, and others. Uh, it is typically associated with mental illness and drug abuse. However, excited delirium is not recognized as a condition by the American Psychological Association or the American Medical Association, nor is it listed in the latest edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, aka the cops and their cronies are full of shit. Yeah, this sounds like a disease that was made up because all of the symptoms seem to really fall in line with uh, trying not to be killed by the cops. Yeah. Right, right. I swear that this had the DA's report in it. I still can't find it, but... If I thought it did. I, I was you, looking if, through because it had... Um, the one thing I was looking at was the, uh, the time stamps of like, oh, at 5.30 in the morning they were struggling with uh uh you know in the bathtub and then it skips ahead and was like oh this is when they called the fire department to have these uh you know the ketamine and whatever injected and i'm like what happened in that 15 or so minutes there other than just deliberate like tasing and beating this guy who's obviously in the middle of a mental health episode that's not going to get through to them you know i I'm wondering why it took that long for them to understand as police officers that they were not equipped for this situation. You know, I, I, I'm wondering why it took that long and, and if excited delirium is what we're going with for, uh, you know, cause of death, why did it take so long to get uh, medical help there? Exactly. And I just want to as always state that black lives matter but i want to know why the hell this wasn't mainstream news three years ago why am i just finding finding out about this in 2021 the actual murder happened in 2017 and the body cam footage was released in 2018.
Anyway, the point is, none of the officers were charged. I don't think any of them were even faced with disciplinary action. They just went back to work like nothing fucking happened. Um, oh man, Cody, this one should be fun. Inside Arizona's election audit, GOP fraud fantasies live on. <laughs> Where do we even start with this? I... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, there's no, there's no better bastion of where the GOP has just gone full on Looney Tunes than than in Arizona state politics. I, <laughs> I really, I, other than here, I haven't seen it anywhere else where things have gotten this just out there, you know. And and you know, I'll give a lot of credit to to certain Democratic state representatives and state senators and things that there has been a, a a good amount of pushback on certain issues and on other issues they've been pretty weak to stand up against what is a fairly obviously fascist wing that is taking over the az gop uh it, the whole thing is just <laughs> and the audit itself is really i've been sort of half following because a i don't really super take it seriously and b i Again, it's the AZ GOP. I don't expect anything to come out of this other than just statewide embarrassment. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's really, it's really sad and really stupid. I don't really know what else to say about it. Um, so I am copying a link. I'm dropping it into the comments. Vicky found the DA report. With Cinema, a, a Green Party member. Honestly, I haven't been in Arizona long enough to tell you that, but if she is, she's a disgrace to everything that is green. Cinema, uh, I actually know a little bit of the backstory on this, is that Cinema was a Code Pink activist that was involved with the Arizona State Green Party for a time, and then through getting elected, I believe was... Uh, given a a certain amount of financial support from the same people who were propping up uh the snake herself liz warren this past democratic election primary uh and you know once that happens and you've got that money rolling it was what it was going to be so yeah kirsten cinema is not our ally just like putting that out there to the world like we we don't fuck with her yeah yeah, I completely agree. I have tried to leave her voicemails about various issues, and her, her mailbox is almost always full. Like, you can't leave a message, and if you email her, she doesn't email you back. I will say that at least Mark Kelly, even if it takes him weeks, will send a generic email back. She didn't even do that. Anyway. <laughs> Um, so I guess, uh, I'm not gonna, like, pull up an article for this or, like, dive deep on it at all, but Ford announced, uh, that they are revealing the F-150 Lightning, which is the electric F-150 on May 19th, so, um... <coughs> so we'll be looking into that, um, after it's released. Um, I think it's a sign that even under capitalism the markets are responding to climate change even if it's too little too late 
and I'm willing to embrace that. However, I want to take this moment to say that we're ultimately not looking for green capitalism. We're looking for eco-socialism. The F-150 Lightning should be made by a publicly owned company by union workers. Anyway. Well, and, you know, electrical... Uh, replacing our vehicles with electric vehicles is not going to solve the problem, right? Oh. You know, we no. if we don't touch the problem of you know public transportation and especially our biggest bigger cities, uh, you know, that sort of issue is we can't just throw a, a green capitalist band aid on it and and hope that fixes it because that's still you know a lot of those resources come from the global south where workers yeah. are exploited, yeah. uh, and and that's the sort of thing that that you know. A lot of us sort of on the further left poke at the social democrats about because they still allow this this system of exploitation to happen outside of their own country uh so they can have certain standards of living and propose to fight climate change with their electric cars so you know i think in places like rural areas where you need a car or a truck to get certain things just done as far as your community I can understand that, but as far as bigger metropolitan population centers, I think we really need to look at, you know, phasing out cars as much as possible and really, really... Walkable communities. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. The electricity that that fuels those cars, where is that coming from too, you know? Like, is it coming from a clean source or is it coming from a source that pollutes? Right. And that's something that has been getting a lot of attention, uh, specifically here in Arizona uh, recently. But I mean, we don't know where the solar panels and the, the pieces for the windmill are sourced from. I can almost guarantee that it's somewhere in the global south from exploited workers. But that being said, at least we are looking at, um, you know, updating our energy grid and getting it from renewable sources. I think that even the most conservative people here understand that there is never a shortage of sun fucking sunshine in Arizona. Or wind, they, really, for that matter. You think they would think that in Texas, too, you know? Well, I mean, you know, Texas is a little bit... Uh, Texas is Texas. <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's a good explanation. Yeah, uh... They need to get away from their privatized uh, utilities. Yeah, agreed. I mean, frankly, it needs to be publicly owned, and we need to have an, like a complete national infrastructure, not a state-by-state -state infrastructure. But um, yeah. I digress. So in Tennessee, uh, a gravel and sand mining operator has been ignoring a cease and desist letter since December. And opponents say it's continued construction on the banks of uh, North America's most biodiverse river may already be harm harming wildlife. We're talking about the Duck River. It's in the middle of Tennessee. Has the most species of any river on the continent uh, with at least 151 species of fish and 55 species of mussels, including eight federally protected endangered species. So when volunteer sand and gravel began seeking permission to uh, mine right next to the river there was a lot of opposition the operators received some permits including from the tennessee department of conversation and environment but withdrew their application for a permit from the tennessee valley authority which controls the river system um 
The TVA Act requires the public utility to approve any construction that would affect flood control, such as the pit mining operation and the berms that companies building around the site, all within the floodplain. Although Volunteer never received a permit, it went ahead with construction. TVA sent a cease and desist order in December and has followed up with three additional letters. The company has ignored all of them. The president, Chad Swallows. I mean, can you, is that a real name? Chad Swallows? Of course his name's Chad. Chad. Never trust a Chad. No. Anyway, um, he did say in an email that the company determined it doesn't need a permit because it doesn't affect flood control. Um, with heavy rains in March, opponents say the predictable happened. Photos show the construction site inundated by flooding with a light-colored plume streaming away from it. Uh, Swallows is contesting the violation, claiming the plume is not sediment, but clean water coming off a nearby creek. No, it's sediment. Um, so the Southern Environmental Law Center's Nashville office is uh, involved at this point. Uh, the Tennessee Wildlife Federation is involved at this point. And... Um, so are our local farmers, including one who has worked with the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Natural Resources Conservation Service. Um, so basically, I wanted to talk about this just to talk about it. Um, I'm sure this is not a one of a kind situation. I'm sure this is a familiar thing all over the country, especially since Trump's rollbacks on environmental protections during his administration. Um, I'm hoping that we see the community in Tennessee rally around this and protect their water supply. Yeah, you know, and we have, um, here in Arizona, some of our greens down in Cochise County are, are facing some similar issues, uh, where they have, um, their groundwater is being tapped by uh you know bigger corporations uh especially agriculture things of that sort and it's just devastating to these communities it's devastating to the biodiversity in the area so you know and these companies really just they're fairly comfortable with the fact that they can do whatever they want and and can expect minimal consequences for it especially when it comes to polluting our environment and and specifically how that goes down to our working class and black and brown communities through the effect of environmental racism so i i would hope to see a lot more people especially as we as we really uh get further into the 21st century be very concerned about things like um uh, you know, just environmentalism and trying to be more ecologically sustainable uh, at both a personal and a global level. Agreed. And at the personal level, there's a lot of things that people can do to be more environmentally mindful. Um, like, I'm not saying you got to go vegan, but I mean, me and uh, me and Emily have been doing meatless Mondays for about two weeks. And honestly, I'm starting to notice that like, don't get me wrong, I still like meat, I still eat meat, but I don't, I've been craving it less. It's it's felt less like a necessity, you know? And um, I still use dairy to a point too, but I don't drink milk anymore. Um, you know, like, I mean, little changes. 
make a difference. Or if you're looking into buying a new car, you know, maybe buy that hybrid Prius that you were talking shit about last year instead of buying a fucking F-350 Super Guzzler. You know, like... If we all make a small impact, then it's a big impact. That being said, it's also... We need to force the hands of corporations to do their part because the um, large multinational corporations and the U.S. military are the largest contributors to climate change and they should be held responsible for such. But that being said, there are little things that you and I can do in our daily lives to make a difference. Yeah, you know, and, and part of my view on what our personal responsibility to the planet is, is, you know, it's not just... Uh, eating, you know, eating less meat, eating less dairy, trying to, you know, live more sustainable lives personally, but it also means that we need to stand up for for our environment, you know? I think that is part of your individual responsibility to this world that has birthed all of us. Right, and plant some pollinators, save the bees. <laughs> absolutely, yeah, every garden is a revolution, especially a community garden. I had some pretty big plans about doing a community community garden, but instead it's still in my backyard because I didn't trust the city not to fuck with it. Um, I organized a, a park cleanup and got a phone call from the city about how I didn't have a permit for a couple people with trash bags to go clean up trash in a public park. I mean, if that's how they're gonna act about that park, I'm not about to put food down there. Um, that being said, um, Every garden is a revolution. I agree, especially community gardens, but if you don't have any option, plant some flowers in a box in your backyard. You know, it's, it's, there are options. There's vertical gardening, there's hanging gardens, um, there's raised beds, and there's container gardening. I, kinda, I don't have any raised beds, but other than that, I kind of have a hybrid of all of those in my backyard right now. Um, and the goal is to not have to buy factory farm produce and maybe to have enough to you know give some to some people who need it who don't normally have access to fresh produce or to healthy meals yeah absolutely and you know uh part of what we've been doing recently with um green party of uh, maricopa county we've been working with produce on wheels without waste uh, which have been doing a lot of really important work to you know take this produce that would normally be just thrown in a landfill and wasted and and contribute to a lot of the greenhouse gases that uh, contribute to climate change and we take that produce and we give it to the communities for like i think it's like 12 bucks for a box and it's like pretty hefty box of just like cosmetically ugly produce uh and you know it's that sort of thing where it's like we have all this abundance like scarcity is not a thing that really concretely exists in today's world it's just we have to real reallocate how and where we're using our resources and that starts in in little ways like community gardening uh and in in other ways like you know that sort of volunteer work and mutual aid and and it builds from there isn't there a company that does that, like, um, sells produce that doesn't look like, you know, it can't be filled in stores because it's not aesthetically pleasing? Yeah. I think so. I also support farmers markets. I mean, I know they're, they're out of some people's price range, but you're giving money directly to a family rather than to a factory farm, so. Farmers markets are actually cheaper out here than they are 
than it is at grocery stores. Really? I wish it was yeah. like that here. It was like that back in Michigan. I would, well, yeah. especially in, in Michigan, there's a program. Um, if you have an EBT card, you can, uh, it's called double up bucks. You can go to the farmer's market and spend $20 on your EBT card or bridge card as it's known in Michigan. Um, and you get $40 worth of whatever you're buying. So you spend 20 bucks, you get 40. Every dollar you spend, they give you a dollar, up to $20. But um, you can do that once a week. And uh, that that makes it attainable. That makes it, I mean, for me, when I was living in Flint, now they have this fancy new farmer's market that I've never even been to because I miss the old one by the river. But um, <laughs> anyway, the uh, I used to go to the farmer's market. Actually, when Occupy was happening, the camp was about, three quarters of a mile from the farmer's market. And I had an EBT card at the time. And my contribution to the camp was literally those double up bucks. I'd go down there and buy $40 worth of produce and like, hey, use them this in the next couple of days, <laughs> you know? And then somebody else would go down and do the same. Um, I think every, every state should have something like that. Hell, not every state has a program where you can use an EBT card at the freaking farmer's market. So. I don't know if we can here, but I'm in the middle of farm country, so there's that. <laughs> I mean, that's not necessarily a bad thing. No, I don't. I mean, I don't I have my own feelings about Nebraska, but it's all right place to survive. <laughs> um, Emily said, I believe it's 50 pounds of produce they give. And as she said in the comments, we've participated um, a few times and it is a really good program. Uh, for the amount you get, it's, it's kind of an astonishing amount for the amount, you know, like, I don't even think we were able to use all of, uh, what we got and it was, you know, next to nothing, uh, price-wise. So, I mean, that, that is a really good program, frankly, and I'm glad that the Green Party of Maricopa County has been involved with that. And I'm hoping that, uh, we see a spread of that and programs like it. Uh, Natalie said, exactly, Rob, the less you eat of meat, the less cravings you have. I have been, I've had years now where I have not eaten meat, um, except for maybe like once a year. And I mean, ultimately my issue with meat isn't even like, you know, a life was taken to provide this food. I feel like, um, I just, I just had a brain fart. <laughs> what do you eat instead of meat? Asking for a friend. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, mushrooms, eggplant, um, like Beyond Meat. Actually, the, uh, I forget what brand it was, but uh, Winco, which is a, a co-op grocery store here in Arizona. Um, employee-owned business. That's where we do most of our grocery shopping. But they have a uh, brand of meatless chorizo and we used it for stuffed peppers and that was so damn good. Um, and, and I mean, like simple things like, I mean, don't get me wrong, I still make like chicken stock and beef stock as well. Um, but I made veggie stock the other day and you know, like using that instead of a meat product. But ultimately though, my issue with eating meat isn't even like the ethical problem of the life is taken to uh, create this food. That's kind of the circle of life is how I view that. What I have a problem with are these factory farms, the conditions that these animals exist in are terrible. 
I mean, you know, you go to a family farm and most things are, most of, most of the animals are not in a, you know, tiny pen with a shit ton of other cows. You know, they have a field to run around in and they eat grass instead of grain. You know, things like that. I, I mean, how these animals exist is my ultimate issue with meat. It's not even that, I'm just advocating buy from a local farmer, go out and hunt your own, your own meat, you know, stop giving your money to Tyson Foods. That's me. Okay. I mean, I just, I don't get, I can't have gluten. So I put on a lot of other things, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but right. I buy my, I buy whole cows from South Dakota. So. Fair enough. Yeah, and I mean, like, honestly, the, the more that I move in that direction, the less I even, you know, notice an absence of meat. I'm still addicted to butter, though. So, I mean, that's a thing. Uh, the real thing there is, is just that, the sourcing, what it comes down to of, you know, be particular about where you get it from. I'm... You know, I might enjoy some vegan or vegetarian meals, but I'm never going to be able to survive as a vegan or vegetarian myself. But I've become a lot more selective about where I get my meats from yep. and make sure that it's from, you know, local sources that uh, have them free range, not, you know, stockpiled into a fucking barn where they don't even have room to turn around without stepping in their own shit, you know? Yeah, I think there's, you know, on the topic of like being meat free, I think there is certainly a faction of people who are sort of disregard like things like uh, indigenous communities and their connect their connection to the land and the meat that they get. Uh, people with dietary restrictions like uh, our our friend Chanel and the Young Eco Socialist Caucus like cannot survive on a meat free diet. So I think the best thing that we can do is try and localize our agriculture as much as possible and do it in the most humane way as possible. And I think we can learn a lot from indigenous practices about how to do that. Um, I think we can yeah. learn a lot about how to coexist with our planet in general from indigenous culture. Um, I'm, so real. I'm sorry that I kind of just like interjected there, but no, you're absolutely right. We can learn a lot from indigenous communities about this. It's a matter of having respect for that life um and if you're going to kill something for food honor it and make use of every bit of it don't let any of it go to waste you know absolutely i guess this will bring us into our segment which is international happenings um we have some updates uh from myanmar india france um but we're going to talk about Germany a little bit first. Uh, Trisha, are you cool with uh, taking over for a minute? Um, yes, but I need just a moment because I'm still trying to find the file in Drive. I can send you the link real quick. Please do, because I'm not seeing it. I thought you had it open. Damn. No, I'm kidding. I did not, because, you know, we've We've been having a good flow doing more free form, yeah. Happening naturally, you know. <laughs> right, fair. All right, um, I'm gonna drop it in the chat real quick. It awesome is. Uh, we are on slide 14. Okay. 
beautiful. And I will be right back. Okay. All right. Oh. Sorry. Just a moment. It's loading. Aha. Okay. Um, this is something we were talking about earlier in the group chat, actually. This is really, really fucking intriguing. Um, activists in Berlin have a radical plan to fight the rising rents by seizing the apartments. Um, basically, they, uh, they have stuff in their laws set up where they can seize property for social use, basically. Um, and in this facet, you know, they're, they're getting sick of being abused by landlords because the cost of living there has skyrocketed. The cost of rent specifically has skyrocketed in the last 10 years or so. And they've had their fill of it. Um, under articles 14 and 15 of the German Constitution, uh, let's see here. Number 14, the property inheritance and expropriation. Um, section one, property and the right of inheritance shall be guaranteed. Their content and limits shall be defined by the laws. Uh, part two, property entails obligations. Its use shall also serve public good. Uh, number three, ex expropriation shall only be permissible for the public good. It may only be ordered by or pursuant to a law that determines the nature and extent of compensation. Such compensation shall be determined by establishing an equitable balance between the public interest and the interests of those affected. In case of dispute respecting the amount of compensation, recourse may be had to the ordinary courts. And for Article 15, it says land, natural resources, and means of production may, for the purpose of socialization, be transferred to public ownership or other forms of public enterprise by a law that determines the nature and extent of compensation. With respect to such compensation, the third and fourth sentences of paragraph three of Article 14 shall apply mutatis mutandis. And as much Latin as I know, I don't know what that one is, but hey. Um, basically, they've already got a bunch of um, apartment housings that are already publicly owned for this purpose, you know, of making sure that there is affordable housing for the people there. Um, and what they're discussing doing is basically buying out a couple more of the huge companies there that are, you know, realtor companies that rent properties out that own thousands of apartments throughout Berlin because they have gotten to the point of exploiting the people and the people are fed up, you know, when you're living in a city, if I remember correctly, I believe they said 85% of the city's inhabitants are renters. Renters, yeah. And they're, and they're you know, their their rents have like doubled in the last ten years. Um, that's insane, and I think that's absolutely fucking awesome that they have it written into their constitution that if somebody starts to exploit the people like that, the people have the right to assume rights over that property itself and go, wait a minute, nope, fuck you, this is a public asset now. Right, because there was like a five-year rent freeze, and then the the constitutional court overturned that. Reason, then 
the one company Deutsche Wannen, mm-hmm. like um, doubled the rent prices and they own most of the properties for that 85% of renters. And yeah. so, and they're a publicly traded company and like they got like a 3% bump and yeah, it's just, yeah, I'm glad they're doing it. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> I think that's something that would be great to have here you know we we can follow their lead and maybe see about getting those types of laws implemented where we would be able to seize back some of our power from you know this very classist system of exploitation yeah anybody else any thoughts <laughs> I, mean, I came I in a little late are, are you talking about the uh the articles of the German Constitution still, or are you on to the second story? Yeah, no, well, I'm curious, uh, as a socialist, um, what do you think about this, Cody? Uh, so, you know, I'm all in favor of expanding the public commons to include everything that is necessary to lead a dignified life in the 21st century. You know, so that means shelter, that means food, water, healthcare, education, a decent job doing something that, you know, is not backbreaking, exploited labor. Uh, those are things that I hold very dear. So I think, you know, housing in general should not be commodified whatsoever. Um, I would be interested to learn a little more about what the precedent of this legal article would be like how that's been used in Germany in the past. Cause article, I'm, I article 15 has not been used. Uh, article 14 has been used. We in the United States would refer to that as eminent domain, but they expanded there is an article 15 to include land, not just land, but natural resources and means of production. Um, so basically, they're trying to take public ownership of these apartment buildings. Yeah, that, that's sort of the thing. I guess if there isn't really a, a, a noted precedent of it, uh, I would be interested to see how that plays out. I'm all in favor. Anything that puts more people in housing, gets people off the streets, like, yes. Absolutely. I think that's something that we really can to going on the ballot here and see about passing on local levels it, you know that's something that would greatly benefit people like look at all of these apartment complexes that have tanked in flint just in the last year um a lot of them owned by the same fucked up management company that is not local at all they're out of florida and complex after complex that they owned has had to be shut down because they weren't doing proper maintenance. They were letting people go without heat in winter. They were letting people go without water. They were letting trash pile up on the properties instead of having the garbage company come and empty the dumpsters. It was just fucking overflowing all over the place. And now a couple of them, uh, they ran the last of their renters out, a couple of whom I know, um, by setting the place on fire. Wow. that (laughs) it's one of those things it's like wait a fucking minute at this point we should be able to go fuck your corporation and seize those properties as public assets right here you know and actually fix them up get them up to par and make them livable again because those handful of apartment complexes in flint alone could house so many people that right now are unhoused 
you know, we have overflowing shelters that don't have room for people that if you're not there by a certain time, you're not going to get a bed. Um, and it's, you know, way before the time that they require you to be in for the night. Things like that. We, we could solve these problems by doing these things. Um, maybe that's something we need to put down as an action item to set forth. Yeah, actually, one of these days I want to do a, a deeper dive into some of the activism that I that I saw in Detroit in the brief period that I lived there. Um, on yeah. the northeast chunk of the city, there literally there are activists and houseless people that are literally taking over abandoned properties, uh, remodeling them with upcycled um, materials and living in them. That's called yeah, adverse possession, if you're not familiar with that legal term. <clears throat> yep. It's abandoned and you start squatting, eventually you get squatters, right? And if you're investing your money into fixing the place up, you can eventually, if I remember correctly from reading up on those local laws in Detroit, you can actually claim rights to the property if you've spent your money fixing it up. Or yeah. done work picking it up. Either way, it even if it's using you know upcycled materials, you've invested of yourself with your time and your labor to improve the property, yep. giving you a legal claim. And in in Detroit, they have specific local ordinances about it. Um, if a house is abandoned uh, and you start doing work on it, instead of the seven years it would traditionally be, um, I think it's twelve months to claim a property by ad adverse possession. And we should look into laws like that on a broader scale. Um, I think, actually, Cody, I think that could be a, a good thing for us to try to do here. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I especially the, the past year or so with COVID and everything going on, I've been paying a lot of attention to, uh, you know, just the amount of unhoused community members I see out and about in the Phoenix metro area. And it it really breaks my heart because, you know, especially the way that a lot of these developers are treating housing in this community, uh, it's not like it's no longer you're not buying a house. You are buying a representation of a storage of X amount of money that you own. And usually it's just, it's displacement. It puts people out of their homes that they've been in for generations. It, it contributes to gentrification. And I think, you know, there are a lot of avenues we can explore as far as how we solve this. Um, I think as far as from a public policy perspective, we could definitely expand community land trusts, which I think is a really uh, important idea that hasn't really gotten enough of its time of day as far as expanding uh, home ownership. Um, I think another thing that would be really important to push for at the local level is a vacancy tax uh, that's pretty pretty heavily instituted. You know, if you are not part of our community and you own this, this luxury condo complex or something, and you have all these these housing units that are sitting vacant because you just want to store your money in our community, uh, you know, we're going to tax the hell out of you for it. Um, and you know, that is. A reformist solution, but it is it is one of many things that I think we could do from a policy perspective that could that could help out with that. Um, from the the community and direct action perspective, I think another big part of um, 
why it's so important to build dual power and why we have this big idea of like we have to do a little bit in the system and a little bit outside of the system is that you know just look at what some of these tenants unions are able to accomplish when they stand together against these landlords who are just historically uh just cruel cruelly treating their tenants because they've gotten away with it so i think you know i always come back to the idea that we're we're always stronger together and it is hard to come together sometimes uh we have disagreements we're all people but fundamentally i think most people believe that everybody should have a safe place to sleep at night everybody should have good food clean water just a dignified life so I want to kind of piggyback off of this, and we're going to be circling back to something that we talked about on these screens back when we first started them in the beginning of February. Uh, the city council in Austin, Texas, approved the purchase of a hotel to house homeless. And uh, it was so successful that they bought a second one. Um, there was a lot of criticism from, you know, neighbors who didn't like the city's plans. They were worried about property values and such, but... The point is, is, uh, you know, they, <laughs> I, I mean, okay, so like there was a co-owner of the Hampton Inn that led a protest against it. Okay, so I, I really don't care what he thinks about housing the homeless in a fucking hotel. I really don't. The point is, though, that the Austin City Council purchased uh, a motel called the Candlewood Suites um, for nine and a half million dollars. Um, that that is something that can be done immediately on a local level across the country, um, and right. now there's now there's precedence for it. And we've seen the success. The crime rate is actually going down in the area. Um, Evidence right there for what you were saying earlier, Cody. That's the that's the proof right fucking there. And um, that money to buy to buy that housing for our unhoused community members could come directly from the police departments of most major cities and only be like three to five percent yep exactly yep, yep. and I, I think that's one of the key things that we need to do and um i know it was a little off topic to bring it up but there's precedence it was done in austin and it was so successful that the city bought a second hotel or motel rather essentially turn them into I don't want to call it a homeless shelter because it's not like show up by this time where you don't get a bed yada 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 you basically get a motel no, room a as an apartment you have your own private space it's not just a bed in a room right it's your home they've done the same in a couple parts of Colorado if I remember correctly mind you it's been a couple months since I was looking into this but I believe in Denver and Colorado Springs they've done similar things as far as buying motels to serve as new housing for people who are unhoused um, and it being the same thing there of drops in crime rates um, and you know people are actually thriving they're they're getting away from things that are a lot easier to get stuck in when you are homeless, like drug abuse. Um, and they've started to deal with that as an actual health issue instead of a legal one there. And what do you know? You give somebody a roof over their head and access to showers and food and things like that, and it lifts their fucking spirits and 
they're no longer feeling the need to numb themselves to life so fucking much. Who would have fucking thought? I don't know. Socialists? Right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> also in Germany, I guess getting a little, you know, back on track. Um, the German Greens voted to expel a Green mayor over an online racial slur. Um, so, Which you know, like, exactly. Right, because like we were saying earlier, you can't have any bit of that and be a movement fighting for equality. You cannot have racism. You cannot have sexism. You cannot have homophobia or any of those things and still be claiming to fight for equality so more power to you again germany <laughs> so i i mean that being said um it's it's really testing um the green party uh you know national elections are this year and um well the greens are you making think? pretty significant headway into actually being a force to be reckoned decision. with right um, so like a prominent green mayor, this motherfucker? a prominent green mayor posted a racial slur about a German national footballer and regional leaders of the party voted this weekend to expel Boris Palmer, the provocative mayor, over a Facebook post in which he referred to the former Germany international Dennis Sawago, I'm not sure if I said that name right, whatever, as an awful racist in reference to an unsubstantiated anecdote on social media that the footballer who has a Nigerian father and German mother had once bragged about the size of his penis using the N-word. Palmer, who has been made, uh, who has been mayor, rather, of the Southern University town since 07, said he made his comment in the context of a debate about footballers being banished from public life over their choice of language, saying, quote, I exaggerated an absurd allegation of racism to such a grotesque extent that it was uh, meant to be clear how beside the point it is. Um, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really believe that, but we're actually, I, I think that all across America, I don't mean to like make it sound like it's specific to any one state or not, but I think that right now the American Greens are struggling with the same thing. There's a lot of people who, while they might be well-intentioned, have some ideas that are to put it nicely out of date. That's coming very nicely. <laughs> yeah, and you know, uh, the thing is, is there's, at least from the way I see it, since I've joined the Green Party in the United States, is there is a, there's a very noticeable difference between, you know, ages like 18 to 35 or 40 who are involved with the Green Party, who are trying to build it into a workers' party for people, planet, and peace, uh, and really really sort of move us a little further left and a little further into you know the the idea of like being intersectional and the fact that you know all of our struggles are related and we can't deal with the the second wave feminism and turfism that is that is sort of uh exclusionary of of you know our trans and non-binary comrades uh we also have our own issues with with uh bigotry and racism uh even if it is not quite as um uh rigid as as the conservative brand um it's still you know 
We live in an inherently white supremacist society, and if you are a white person in an organization that is is has a goal of liberation of all people, you got to confront that in yourself in everything you do. And I think a lot of old timers uh, didn't really come up understanding that the way that I think young people do today. Um, so yeah, I, wonder, I, I also wonder about these statements to begin with. Like, given the timing, his party just took a lead in national polls over Angela Merkel's Christian Democratic Union Party. And, uh, it, why would he even try to jump into this social media shitstorm? I can't help but wonder if maybe he was paid or, or prompted by the powers that be, meaning the Christian Democratic Union, to try to make the Green Party look bad so they can hold their power. I would, uh, I, I would love to believe that something that convoluted could be taking place. Um, but at frankly, the same time, think, yeah, frankly, I think the simplest answer is usually probably true, and that the Green Party, unfortunately, we have small subsections of folks that. Uh, should probably be off social media for starters <laughs> um uh, even here in the u.s uh but yeah i i i think this is something that globally greens especially young greens are really trying to to change the conversation on and move us towards a more inclusive and intersectional way of seeking liberation for all of us indeed so um that being said, we do plan, or at least I do plan, I guess I shouldn't say we in this context, but I do plan on following the German election cycle this year and trying to gain an understanding of how the social democratic system works, for starters. And um, I, I think that we're seeing some change in their Green Party and some people being less willing to take racist shit. Um, but the front runner, uh, the Green co-leader who, who is poised to potentially succeed Angela Merkel as chancellor, um, expressed her support for a move to exclude Palmer from the party. <clears throat> and uh, she posted on Twitter that his comments are racist and repulsive. This adds to repeated provocations that exclude and hurt people. Um, I, I think that we're seeing more and more um, people within the Green Party just frankly not allowing this rhetoric to continue. And that's exactly what we have to do. Um, but that being said, uh, Annalena, I don't know how to say her last name, but um, we will be paying attention to this woman right here in September. She could unseat Angela Merkel. That is pretty significant. Angela Merkel has been the chancellor for eternity, it seems like, at this point. All right, so moving out of Germany and into Myanmar. Um, a poet's body was returned to, to their family with organs missing. This is not the first time we've seen things like this out of Myanmar since this uprising began. Since the military coup, I guess I really should should say. Um, but he wrote in resistance to the generals who seized power. Uh, he was detained. It doesn't say for how long. 
Um, but he, his body was returned. Hey, Donna's back. His body was returned um, to his family with organs removed. It doesn't say what organs, but the point is, why are they desecrating bodies at all? Right. Like, it, it's intimidation. It's nothing more. It's nothing less. And I can't express how proud I am of the people of Myanmar for continuing to stand up for what's right in a situation where I can't guarantee anybody um, would not be intimidated in the submission. Right. Um, that, that's some real fuck shit to have to face dealing with just for speaking your piece about your fucking rights as, you know, a human being. But, somebody could fucking disappear your ass and send you back in pieces. You know? It's fucked. It's fucked. So, yeah. Agreed. Like, they, they've got mad respect for me, too, for continuing to fight in the face of that. Because that's exactly what those motherfuckers are wanting, is to scare them away from it. With that, it, It's trying to traumatize them. To get them to stop fighting for their rights. Don't let them. Hmm. This is interesting. Uh, well, obviously somebody already disputed it, but we uh, supposedly have 30 seconds of video belonging to Behind Woods. Um, we get flagged by Behind Woods. What? Probably. This is the second time in a row. So right now we have uh, no viewers on. Um... We haven't even shared video. I know, I know. We our our video has been blocked on Facebook though. I don't know who went in and disputed it, but thank you whoever did that. Um, I'm gonna shift over to our YouTube channel real quick. Can somebody drop in the comments of the video that's not working that we are on YouTube? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, otherwise, we're just going to continue the show because it's still being recorded on my computer and it's still going to go on to podcast platforms. Uh, so, Myanmar's military junta is branding the rival government, is what they called them, a terrorist group. The rival government, mind you, is the elected government. Branding the rival... So, you know, just to put that in perspective... Uh, does anybody have any thoughts on that? Like, how do you how do you brand a democratically elected government as a terrorist group? And how do we do that? Well, here? hold up a minute. The Look, United States does it all the time. Now. Yeah, you're right. What were you saying, Trish? I'm sorry. I said, "Look who we had for president last." Yeah, yeah, you're right. At them committing terrorist acts, literally. So, I mean, you know, and I'm not just talking about shit, which I only find to be a terrorist act because their location was the wrong one. Um, but I agree. In fact, the it, it does happen. Sometimes people get elected that it, it's questionable of really how did this motherfucker get this seat. Um, it depends on what they're doing with it. Are, are these elected officials terrorizing the people there? 
definitely ask of the people if they are rising against, you know, their government of, well, what's your reason? What's, what is the cause here? They might have a justifiable one. You never know. Right. Uh, You're cutting out pretty bad, Trisha. Ow. All right, so uh, moving on to India. The World Health Organization um, has classified a triple mutant COVID variant from India as a global health risk. Um, we're not going to do a full-blown... Um, COVID dive like we usually do in beans here, um, but I'm sure you all remember from last week that India is in a state of runaway, um, runaway pandemic, I guess is the, the best way to word it. And Dean, um, hoping he was wrong, predicted that we could see a million cases a day out of India. And uh, this variant is part of the fuel for that. Um, We'll see how that spreads across the globe, but it's quite concerning. And it also throws into question the, the efficacy of vaccines uh, currently being used. So that is problematic, but I guess we'll face it together when it gets here. Yeah, I'm, I've been hearing rumors that there's gonna be another shutdown in July. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, and I think that we were too eager to come out of it, which Dean predicted too. And I mean, that's why at the beginning of this, when Dean was saying that this could rival the 1918 flu pandemic, I was like, no, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. But there is a way, and we're almost there. Um, and I said that there was no way. <laughs> Um, well, and, and this whole thing also just sort of shows like, you know, uh, this sort of epidemic, uh, viral or otherwise, is going to become more and more common as climate change continues to, to get worse. You know, there are, this is a preview of how the current establishment intends to deal with the coming issues that we're dealing with. Because really, so far, COVID... You know, there's been a lot of deaths, but as far as what it could be in the future, as far as more uh, infectious variants of diseases, uh, our capitalist system, especially in the West and, you know, the global North, is just not prepared inherently for something that requires a, a large global population to commit to caring for each other for at least that period of time. So, uh it's it's really troubling to me because I really don't think we get out of situations like this without vast system and societal change. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of this, you know, the new variants pop up is because we didn't deal with it. We swept it under the rug. We waited until we had a vaccine, which we're still not sure, you know, how well it works and, and what, what the future of that is going to look like. And, 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 Frankly, for the most part, the, the world's governments, specifically the United States, have left their people to sort of deal with it as best they can. And that's troubling to me. That is very troubling to me, especially as we look at 
the the monster that the climate catastrophe is going to be. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, so the protesting farmers in India are working on immunity. Uh, they're seeking vaccination and trying to organize oxygen lingers. I'm not quite sure what that means. I would assume that they're they're trying to make sure that there is a supply of oxygen. That's that's what it sounds like. Yeah, they they run short and they're constantly like begging people to get them oxygen. I believe that actually. Um, but I mean, they're losing hundreds of people daily, uh, you know, hundreds, they're into the hundreds of thousands of cases a day. I mean, I don't think Dean's too far off with his potential million cases a day. And that that is disturbing. Um, you, you have to keep in mind, there's a billion and a half people in India. Um, but yeah, uh, there seems to be a lot of pressure for a national lockdown in India, which has not happened yet. Keep in mind, they're only in their second wave right now. Like, we're just out of our second wave. They're at their peak of their second wave. Um, so for this uh, this new variant to be considered a global health risk, then that means that there's at least a plausible chance of it spreading globally. I mean, that could be the spark of the third wave for the rest of the world. And if it's that bad, that's terrifying. Um, so I do think, I have thought that we came out of this way too early, um, you know, and we did it guns a blazing, so to speak. Like, oh, we can go back out to eat. I work in a restaurant, I see it. We're back at 100% capacity. Nobody's wearing masks. There's no social distancing anymore. It's going to be bad when the third wave hits. We're still under mandate until the 25th of this month here. And then after the, once May 26 hits, then it's going to go back to 100% no mask. <clears throat> and my daughter's a waitress, so it scares me. I'm a line cook, so. I was a kitchen manager for a long time, so I get it. I was a sous chef at two restaurants at the same time. Um, <laughs> by the way, guys, I am here. I know that nobody's acknowledging me. I did. But I'm right <laughs> fucking hey, here. Back. Yeah, I, I said welcome back. Yeah, I didn't hear shit. Cody, <laughs> right, I'm, I, I'm sorry. I'm chaos. Uh, this is chaos. It's always like this. Okay. Oh, <laughs> right. Trisha, I love you. But still, I love you too. How you doing over there? How's Ma? Uh, Mom's doing fine. I'm in the middle of a panic attack because you know this big giant meathead is afraid of bugs. Anything that swarms freaks me out. People scare the fuck out of me. Yes, swarm <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> oh my god. Thank you. Sorry, Thank you for that, Don. I need it was, today. Shit was getting real. I, I just read Natalie's comment about <clears throat> apparently Myanmar or Myanmar is uh returning bodies with organs missing. Yes. Yeah. That's what we were just discussing. Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ, man. What? Yeah. Okay. Have we gotten around to talking to Cody about like did you ask him the questions that yeah. in the group chat? Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right, I'm not going to derail this anymore. Back to being on mute. 
Oh, you're good. Uh, Don, you actually might have something to say about this. Um, we've all talked about climate change a lot, and I'm sure that we're all aware at this point that one of the few countries that's actually doing anything is France. And there are thousands of people protesting uh, Macron's climate pledges, saying that it's nowhere near enough. Um, and, and the reason that I said Don might have something to say about it is because we're always talking about how the French know how to revolt. <laughs> they do. They do. They really do. But, um, well, what are they doing to protest this time? Or did they have the guillotines out? Or are they dumping shit on the parliament? Like what? Well, I mean, uh, I don't know about I don't know about all that yet. I haven't even read the article yet, but the uh, the picture here is uh, you know just a shit ton of masked people in the streets. And hey, people... look at that French horn player. She ain't yeah. a man. Well, no shit, Don. <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Since it's in France, is she just a horn player? Hmm. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. Okay. Uh, oh, oh, man. Uh, we have needed your fucked up sense of humor in here tonight, man. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we're talking about a bunch of dark shit mostly, so I'm glad. That's I'm right. glad that you're here. I don't. It's hard without Dean, man. Dean's usually our comic relief. I don't know if you've got it in me today. I've been real, I don't know if you've noticed in like the group chat and shit, but I've been real argumentative and like aggressive about things today. I don't like it. I mean, it happens. Um, anyway, so in terms of uh, I wish I was French. What? I was just saying, I wish I was there to smoke this with Don. Ah. Tomorrow I'm getting high as fuck. Anyway. Indeed. Go ahead, Rob. Medicated. <laughs> Medicated as fuck. You get the dead stare on your face like... I'm <laughs> 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 <it's> fucking great. <laughs> oh, man. So, oh little little yeah, behind yeah. the scenes, everybody. Rob does that literally all the time. He's looking at me like that right now. That smile's fake, I can tell. <laughs> this is just my face, guys. <laughs> It, it is because of that that, it, mind you, even though I'm a full fucking decade older, you have been listed as my dad on Facebook for <laughs> almost a decade now. Yes. You give the dad everybody, and it's fucking golden. But I'm not as good at it as the old man. This the is old true, man don't know where he's looking. But that's because he actually... He has full dadness to bring to the table with it. So far, you're just a fur baby father, so it's it's limited. I mean, to be Pop, fair, the, the, real the old man is blind. I don't know how he sees any of us. He, he sees just... through everybody's bullshit, though. <laughs> <laughs> Very dad-like. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, so uh, these nationwide protests came after the lower house of the French parliament this week approved a climate bill aiming at curbing greenhouse gas emissions that environmental activists say don't go far or fast enough. As it stands, the proposed law is a, climac uh, a climatic and social failure. Um, ensemble pour le climat, meaning together for the climate. Um, Meanwhile, Greenpeace France denounced the government's refusal to take action for the climate. Why can't we get a turnout like this here? 
I mean, tens of thousands of people in Paris alone over the government actually trying to take some sort of action on climate change. Here we have no action on climate change and no movement in the streets to force it. When was the last time tens of tens of thousands of Americans agreed on fucking anything? Occupy. Okay, so like almost 10 years ago now? Yeah. Actually, I don't know, man. The movement for Black Lives is pretty much at that point, I think. Okay, Which, so once a, de once a decade, sure, we agree. But I, um, I hope that a lot of the momentum going with BLM, I'm hoping that they are networking with people from Occupy because a lot of us have remained in contact with each other. And that's how this that's how this podcast was born. Down. Huh? I said that's how this podcast was born. I mean, if you think about it, the original group was fucking me, you and Dean. I mean, Don was like, I don't know, maybe I'll be part of it. But it was pretty much me <laughs> and Dean, a bunch of Flint occupiers like, hey, it's been 10 years. Let's try to do something. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> well, and you know, we can't uh, especially well, like uh, those of you who were occupiers, because I'm I'm a little younger. I'm a little on the younger side. Just turned 23 on Friday. Um, thank you. Um, but you know, I think a lot of those who are who were part of that and are a little older now, like part of your job is to really help us baby activists continue the fight. <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of us have the energy, we have the drive, we have the motivation, but uh, what we look to people who are a little more of our elder is is for like you know what went wrong in the past what can we do better in the future how do we bring everybody together in this same way and and it's something that i've found to be unfortunately uh lacking in a lot of left spaces you know you just I, sort of get thrown in and, and expected to to do something without a whole lot of guidance and it's like you don't really build that solidarity as well in in that yeah. sort of i would say there was some of that in occupy too but I, I think that once we realized it, we tried to uh, compensate for that. But I mean, <laughs> Occupy was out of, uh, I mean, it was a, a direct result of the material conditions in this nation at the time. Uh, the economy was collapsing, jobs were nowhere, and uh, the housing market collapsed. Um, so that, that's essentially what brought everybody together but it was explicitly apolitical. I think that was important. We, uh, you know, like, I mean, of course the conservatives tried to say that Occupy was bought and paid for by the Democratic Party. No, no the fuck it wasn't. The Occupy movement wasn't even associated with the Democratic Party. Um, right. It would have been nice to get those fucking checks though that they think we were getting for being yeah, out no there. Shit. No <laughs> shit, right? <Really? laughs> Um, but Occupy essentially led me to question capitalism for the first time um, and build networks where I could learn from other people, um, which is hilarious to think at the time I was a libertarian and I thought that revolutionary theory was completely unnecessary. Um, now, neither of those things are the case at all. <laughs> so, I mean, I do consider myself more of a libertarian Marxist, but... I mean, I am not an American libertarian, if that makes sense. But at the time, I thought that I was because the ideology sounds great on the surface, right? Everybody's equal and we need to get the government out of our lives. Yeah, it sounds great, except for it doesn't work. There's, I mean, there's, 
Communism well, sounds great on paper too, Rob. Well, true, but communism hasn't been achieved. All right, real communism, we can't find an actual example of in history. We, there's been a few that have tried. Authoritarianism got in the way. And bureaucracy, that's the other thing I was going to say. I think one of the, the setbacks of Occupy was the bureaucracy of the General Assembly. Holy fucking shit. How can you have a four-hour meeting with 100 people at it and get nothing done? Um, right, because every time you turn around, there's, you know, a sprinkling of this going on, and it's like, well, wait, what? We got to discuss this issue. Um, yeah, there was so many derailing conversations at the general assemblies, and um, I, I think that that drove a lot of people from wanting to be involved in the general assemblies. And once people weren't turning out for the general assemblies, then we really weren't getting anything done. Um, I mean, as a movement as a whole. Uh, and of course, they were not, not in Flint because we were lucky enough to be on private <laughs> land um, that was, how shall we say, offered up by a, by a real estate agent, actually. Um, but we had the option to really like dig in and build an encampment for the winter. Uh, whereas we saw on live streams every other night, pretty much, uh, one encampment or another was being broken up by the police. And that's actually why we ended up staying on private property. We protested on public property. And then when it was over, we retreated to the safety of our own space where we didn't have to worry about the cops showing up and pushing us out by force. Is that kind of a cop-out? Sure, but we were also there, as far as I'm aware, by far the longest of any occupation in the United States. Ours went almost full year. Almost. Yeah, I mean, I was there for like seven months and then I went down to Detroit for six months. Which Detroit still had activism going on, but it wasn't the Occupy movement as it was known prior to that. Um, a bunch of activists moved into this shitty slum in southwest Detroit, and there was an organizing space below it for probably about a year. Um, and then the activists that were living in said slum organized against the slumlord with the rest of the tenants, and, well, we no longer had the activist space. But um, that being said, I, I think that what happened needed to happen. There was a lot of issues in that building. Um, I'm not even going to go into that. It's too off topic. But there was a lot of issues in that building. So um, that being said, enabling a, a law like we were discussing earlier of seizing that. <laughs> right. Um, I think that moving forward, we need to. I, I think that honestly, they have it pretty well figured out uh, in the movement for Black Lives. And they, they seem to have, at least in George Floyd Square, a system that, in my opinion, and maybe I'm wrong on this, it seems to be adapted from the General Assembly system. Um, but they got rid of the ridiculous hand signals, and uh, it's a little more organized and a little less bureaucratic. It's a little harder for somebody to come in and completely derail what you're trying to accomplish. Um, 
So I think the best advice that I can give is in terms of community activism, watch out for people that are there for the wrong reasons and watch out for the weaponization of bureaucracy. Anyway, and that's exactly what it was. Uh, I mean, for a while, it seemed like a lot of people uh, in our occupation, anyway, were trying, were set on trying to vote people off the island like it's fucking Survivor, and that really pissed a lot of people off. And uh, well. There were a couple of, uh, a couple exceptions where people were kicked out, but it was for misbehavior, not for disagreements on ideas. Um, right. I don't know. I'm still going down the, the, the Occupy rabbit hole, which I guess is a pretty good segue into wealth inequality. <laughs> um, right. It amazes me too that there's still so many people out there who do not know that that was the main thing that Occupy was protesting against. So all the facets we were bringing up boiled down to economic inequality. Absolutely. Um, last week, our wealth inequality segment was about restaurant workers, and it still is today, because I'm actually gonna screen share this because it's that unbelievable, right? This is from CNN Business. Read that headline. It's beautiful. For them to actually acknowledge it, it's, it's like, okay, about fucking time you start paying attention. Yeah, I was going to say, this is not new. It has been made a lot worse by COVID, but like, I was a server when COVID hit. And, you know, I think just about everybody here has done some kind of service industry thing. That job sucks. Like, there's no, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And it's, it's really is not something that, even to this day, the thought of somebody getting, making like two, three bucks an hour because of like tipped minimum wage is like, they're just some of the most exploited workers out there is people who are doing service or hospitality of some kind and it's just it's not right and i'm really kind of encouraged to see the amount of people who are are done taking it you know i think that industry specifically needs a wake-up call that they need to treat their workers a lot better than they have been right so um i've fallen a little behind in the comments here um so i'm just gonna scroll up to where i left off um Man, my computer is kind of lagging. Calvin asked, are the new Black Panthers involved in, uh, in Black Lives Matter? And in short, that is a way more complicated question than it would seem. Um, they, they do support what's going on. Uh, the Black Panthers in Minneapolis did a press conference with Unicorn Riot, expressing their support for the movement of Black Lives and talking about why they as individuals were involved with the Black Panther Party. Um, but I don't think that as a blanket statement, you can say that they're involved. I think that they directly influenced uh, the movement for Black Lives, though. 
Natalie said, Rob, I beg to differ. Do you know many Republicans? I know that there are many that are nowhere near supporting Black Lives Matter. I tend to agree with that, but that being said, simply the statement Black Lives Matter is a mainstream acceptable statement now. It was nowhere close to that in 2014 when it started. <clears throat> I guess what I'm trying to say is that Black Lives Matter could be at a critical mass. Um, and uh, Don's mom, aka mom, said there's too many splinter things going on and no real, sh uh, no real leadership and plan for direction. Uh, I agree with that, and that's that's why us, um, along with the Green Party and along with many other groups, are pushing for left unity. So that way, we can put aside our differences at least for now. Uh, if we topple capitalism, then we can argue about you know the um, the role of the state or of hierarchy. We can debate that later. Right now, the threat is too great against us, so we need to work together. Um, Natalie agreed with the sentiment and said there are too many leftist uh, groups always fighting. Um, and then mom said, so children, again, direct leadership. Back to topic. <laughs> so back to topic would be low pay and toxic workplaces are driving workers away from restaurants. As Cody was saying, almost all of us have had a service related job, whether it was fast food or retail or, uh, you know, working in a hotel or motel or working in a restaurant. Um, so, you know, we're seeing servers making 375 an hour in some states. Granted, here in Arizona, it's uh, nine, I think, that they make. So that's, you know, better. But the point is we shouldn't have to rely on tips at all. Business owners should pay their employees a living wage. Um, and we all know that the environments are toxic. I mean, it's a it's a great TV show, and Gordon Ramsay does it. But I tell you what, if I worked for a chef like that, I have I would hit him in the mouth. Um, and that's a common attitude in the food service industry. It's toxic. It has been toxic, and it's about time we're talking about it. The point is, though, that the ball is completely, in my opinion, in the court of the workers at this point. And it's time to organize. Um, agitate, or <laughs> agitate, educate, agitate, and organize. Uh, Natalie said, that is so true with the food service industry along with home care workers. There is some help that might come for uh, home care workers in a new bill. I can't remember what it's called. Tips can be so inconsistent. And since we're talking about organizing, I just want to say that if you live in Arizona, like me and Cody and Sterling, if he was here, uh, contact your senators, meaning Mark Kelly and Kirsten Cinema, and uh, tell them to get behind the PRO Act. It's the one good piece of legislation the Democrats have put forward since Biden took office. And um, I'm not going to let the two senators from my home state here in Arizona um, that felt weird to say I live here Arizona is my home but Michigan is my home state <laughs> anyway um, give a call to Kirsten Cinema. give a call to Mark Kelly let them know that it's crucial that they support the working class
Anybody else have anything they want to throw on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, Mark, Mark Kelly and Kristen Cinema just being Democrats are unfortunately going to have to be pushed. Uh, <laughs> that's just part of the name of the game uh, until we get somebody better in. Um, I think the PRO Act is really important and it's something that we have uh, put out some some infographics on on the Young Eco Socialists, uh, I believe our Instagram. We have a whole list of like where you can find their offices and phone numbers and facts and all that fun stuff. So please, definitely, if you are an Arizona resident, contact Mark Kelly, contact Kirsten Cinema, tell them to pass the PRO Act. It's very important for organized labor. I mean, especially being in a right to work state. And I know that my Michigan comrades understand that as well, because they're also a right to work state. Um, but it, it makes it damn near impossible to organize a workplace for the first time. Uh, Mom, I'm gonna address your comment in a minute. Natalie, HR1 is not uh, the bill we're talking about. HR1 is the Voting Rights Act that has a bunch of poison pills hidden in it. Um, so HR1 sounds good until you really dig into it. Um, ultimately though, I do not support HR1, but the PRO Act is protecting the right to organize. Um, mm -hmm. In my opinion, it should have been passed in the 30s and 40s when the National Labor Relations Board was formed. Um, so mom's comment said, uh, idea, perhaps rather than approaching the wealth inequality from the standpoint of income, there's another way. Candidates supported daycare, housing rent caps, etc. Um, and I, I think that rent caps are useful to an extent, but it also pretty much guarantees that your rent is raising by that much per year. Um, I think that we should have a federal rent freeze, personally, but that's a little out of our purview at this exact point in time. Uh, she also said the idea being to improve buying ability by freeing up disposable income. So if the system supported uh, childcare, um, childcare and healthcare, honestly, are two big ways that we could support um, buying ability. And, um, I, th I think that's important. So I'm glad that you brought that up. I was a little bit confused by your first comment, but you clarified it with the second one. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? All right, moving on. Uh, so the next one's going to be power of a strike. I was actually going to exclude this segment today because uh, I didn't have anything for it. And then lo and behold, on my Google uh, speed, on my fucking Android phone, I, um, I saw the headline, 2021 could be the year labor strikes back. And uh, I'm down with that. <laughs> right. Computer's lagging a little bit. I'm waiting for the article to open. There we go. So, um, with a new Democratic administration in place and so many union contracts about to expire, 2021 could be a major turning point in the labor movement. 
I, I feel like that kind of sets up the narrative like the Democratic administration is going to do something about that. But the only way that that's going to happen is with serious pressure um, from unions themselves on the Democratic Party. It's not going to happen just because the Democrats want it to pass. They're going to have to be forced. That was the whole idea of holding Biden's feet to the fire. Um, anyway, so this is just a bit of a an excerpt. I'm going to drop the, the link. It's uh, from a podcast on the Mark Steiner show. Um, but I'm going to drop the link in the comments. There we go. So uh, basically... Uh, Mark is Mark Steiner is joined on this podcast by a longtime union organizer in Boston's SEIU Local 888 Chief of Staff, Rand Wilson, to discuss how labor can seize this moment and turn 2021 into a year of mass solidarity. Um, COVID has turned our economy upside down, frankly. And uh, it is really, in a lot of ways, as I already said, put the ball in the court of the workers. So it's on us at this point. To make it a year of mass solidarity and uh i think that's crucial so i'm not going to go through the entire interview because you know it's pretty much a whole hour um but there is a transcript and a link to the full episode and the link that i posted in the comments and i encourage everybody to take a gander at it all right yeah, I mean, honestly, I've been seeing a lot more uh, talk of general strike than I ever have. All right, so does anybody have any guesses what the next segment is? No. Is, is anybody down with Mao? I think it's charging. <laughs> Ah oh, shit. Ah oh, shit. All right, so uh, give me just a second here. I'm opening the link to the Marxist Internet Archives. I'm copying said link and I'm dropping it in the comments if you want to follow along. Um, we are on page 60 of the PDF that is on that link. That is chapter 11, the mass line. I think it is... Uh, I don't want to say the most important um, chapter in the whole damn book, but it's it's uh, it's up there. It's up there with dual power. And um, I think I'm actually going to stop the music so that way I don't get distracted while I'm reading. Oh God, it's so quiet. All right, so the people. Yeah, I could have done that. Why didn't I do that? <laughs> I'll do that. There we go. That's better. I the cord is long enough. I can grab round two. I didn't have that. I don't know. I'm not doing that. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, again, we're starting at uh, page 60 in the PDF. It is chapter 11, the mass line. So we're just going to start right at the top. The people and the people alone are the motive force in the making of world history. Uh, Cody, how this section kind of works is we're, we kind of read through these uh, these quotations 
And if at any point you uh, have any thoughts that you want to throw out, or if you have any clarification that you have that you want to throw out, or if you have any questions even, or whatever, just say something. Um, sure. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise, I'm just going to keep reading. <laughs> Go for um, it. Do your thing. The masses are the real heroes. While we ourselves are often childish and ignorant, and without this understanding, it is impossible to acquire even the most rudimentary knowledge. The masses have boundless creative power. They can organize themselves and concentrate on places and branches of work where they can give full play to their energy. They can concentrate on production in breadth and depth and create more and more undertakings for their own well-being. The present upsurge Oh, I didn't there we go. The present upsurge of the peasant movement is a colossal event. In a very short time, in China's central, southern, and northern provinces, several hundred million peasants will rise like a mighty storm, like a hurricane, a force so swift, so swift and violent that no power, however great, will be able to hold it back. They will smash all the trammels that bind them and rush forward along the road to liberation. They will sweep all the imperialists, warlords, corrupt officials, local tyrants, and evil gentry into their graves. Every revolutionary party and every revolutionary comrade will be put to the test to be accepted or rejected as they decide. There are three alternatives, to march at their head and try to lead them, uh, to trail behind them, gesticulating and criticizing, or to stand in the way and oppose them. Every Chinese is free to choose, but events will force you to make the choice quickly. Uh, the high tide of social transformation in the countryside, the high tide of cooperation, has already reached some places and will soon sweep over the whole country. It is a vast socialist revolutionary movement involving a rural population of more than 500 million, and it is extremely great for worldwide significance. We should give this moment active, enthusiastic, and systematic leadership, and not drag it back by one means or another. Some errors are unavoidable in the process. This is understandable and they will not be hard to correct. Uh, shortcomings or mistakes found among the cadres and the peasants can be remedied, remedied or overcome provided we give them positive help. Um, and and I, I think that obviously uh, in the case of the Black Panthers, they adapted it to life as a black individual in the United States, but I think we see, not I think, I know we see a lot of that mindset sprinkled through the Black Panther ideology, this this uh, inseparable connection to the masses. Um, and I think it was something that was that was largely missing in the USSR, but that's just my personal opinion. But anyway, continuing on. The masses have a potentially inexhaustible enthusiasm uh, enthusiasm for socialism. Those who can only follow the old routine in a revolutionary period are utterly incapable of seeing this enthusiasm. Um, they are blind and all is dark ahead of them. At times they go so far as to confound right and wrong and turn things upside down. Haven't we come across enough persons of this type? Those who simply follow the old routine invariably underestimate the people's enthusiasm. Let something new appear and they will always and they always disapprove and rush to oppose it. Afterwards, they have to admit defeat and do a little self-criticism. But the next time something new appears, they go through the same process all over again. This is their pattern of behavior in regard to anything and everything new. 
Such people are always passive, always fail to move forward at the critical moment, and always have to be given a shove, uh, a shove in the back before they move forward. <clears throat> uh, for over 20 years, our party has carried on mass work every day, and for the past dozen years, it has talked about the mass line every day. We have always maintained that the revolution must rely on the masses of the people, on everyone's taking a hand, uh, and having opposed relying merely on a few persons issuing orders. The mass line, however, is still not being thoroughly carried out in the work of some comrades. They still rely solely on a handful of people working in solitude. One reason is that whatever they do, they are always reluctant to explain it to the people they lead, and that they do not understand why or how to give play to the initiative and creative energy of those they lead. Subjectively, they too want everyone to take a hand in the work, but they do not let other people know what is to be done or how to do it. That being the case, how can everyone be expected to get moving? I accidentally hit page up. <laughs> to, to get moving and how can anything be done well? To solve this problem, the basic thing is, of course, to carry out ideological education on the mass line, but at the same time, we must teach these comrades many concrete methods of work. Um, I think that that is very much what the Black Panthers were centered in. Um, they were always carrying out education of the masses, and they were always showing their comrades how they could improve their material conditions. Always, that was their entire focus. Um, sorry, <laughs> I was I was checking the comments. Natalie said the music was still on. Natalie, we uh, we decided to turn down the volume instead of turn it off. Uh, 24 years of experience tell us that the right task, policy, and style of work invariably conform with the demands of the masses at a given time and place and invariably strengthen our ties with the masses, and the wrong task, policy, and style of work invariably disagree with the demands of the masses at a given time and place and invariably alien us, alienate us from the masses. The reason why such evils as dogmatism, empiricism, commandism, tailism, sectarianism, bureaucracy, and an arrogant attitude in work are definitely harmful and intolerable, and why anyone suffering from these maladies must overcome them, is that they alienate us from the masses. To link oneself with the masses, one must act in accordance with the needs and wishes of the masses. All work done for the masses must start from their needs and not from the desire of any individual, however well-intentioned, well sorry. It often happens that objectively the masses need a certain change, but subjectively they are not yet conscious of the need, not yet willing or determined to make the change. In such cases, we should wait patiently. We should not make the change until through our work, most of the masses have become conscious of the need and are willing and determined to carry it out. Otherwise, we shall isolate ourselves from the masses. Unless they are conscious and willing, any kind of work that requires their participation will turn out to be a mere formality and it will fail. There are two principles here. One is the actual needs of the masses rather than what we fancy they do. And the other is the wishes of the masses who must make up their own minds instead of our making up their minds for them. Uh, which is something else I think the Green Party has been doing pretty good at doing is, um, you know, finding out directly from people, hey, what can improve your life? What can improve, well, I already said your life. What can improve your material conditions? 
And uh, that relationship with the mass line is crucial. Our Congress shall call upon the whole party to be vigilant and to see that no comrade at any post is divorced from the masses. <clears throat> it should teach every comrade to love the people and listen attentively to the voice of the masses, to identify himself with the masses wherever he goes, and instead of standing above them, to immerse himself among them. So the whole idea of the, ma the mass line, in short, is that the Communist Party of China was never supposed to be a ruling class, which was ultimately one of the big fallbacks in the setup of the USSR. Uh, it was aimed at keeping tied to the mass line, and it was aimed at uh, meeting needs rather than meeting wishes. <clears throat> and um, I, I mean, essentially what we're seeing little by little as we get through this is they are removing some things that they found problematic with the the way the Bolsheviks uh, did things, and they are, they are adding things that they feel that the Bolsheviks fell short on. And that's what we still need to do. We can criticize something and acknowledge that it had faults, but we can still learn from it. It's not a black and white either or situation. Anyway, <clears throat> um, if we tried to go uh, uh, to go on the offensive, when the masses are not yet awakened, that would be adventurism. If we insisted on leading the masses to do anything against their will, we will fail. If we did not advance when the masses demand advance, that would be right opportunism. Commandism is wrong in any type of work because in overstepping the level of political consciousness of the masses and violating the principle of voluntary mass action, it reflects the disease of in impetuosity? I, I know I butchered that. Anyway, our comrades must not assume that everything they understand, or that they themselves understand, is understood by the masses. Uh, what he's trying to say here is don't talk down to people. Uh, put it in words they can understand. Um, if you can't, try to give them context so they can figure it out themselves. Don't, don't be a dick. Yeah, um, and... And if I can just interject for a second, yeah. I think to that point, um, you know, I, I'm in, in currently in school to become an, an educator. And one one educational thing that really stuck with me was reading um, Paulo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And a big part of that is sort of like when you're trying to educate people, no matter what the topic is, is you have to meet people where they're at. Otherwise, you're dictating to them rather than being symbiotic co-subjects uh, of, of an educational process. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, with political education, it's the same way. You know, you can't just dictate to people like this is how it is because, you know, we're the people who sit in the academic ivory tower and read theory all day. You know, that's not the way that you get people on your side. Um, you really got to meet people where they're at and break down, first of all, the way they've maybe been uh, propagandized, especially living in a, a Western hyper-capitalist society like we do, and, and, you know, really break those barriers down one at a time from a perspective that ordinary people can understand. And I think that's something that we've sort of largely not been great at on the left especially here in the in the imperial core especially um, in the internet age 
Yeah, I think a lot of people, when they talk about things that, you know, like politics and like, like their ideology, I think a lot of people are listening to respond rather than to understand. And I think if the left, if humanity as a whole is going to make much progress here soon, we have to be less invested in proving our view right than understanding where people are coming from and finding some form of symbiosis in common human values and empathy. I totally agree. Um, and uh, I think it's also important to, uh, well, I mean, like you said, we don't want to be in our ivory tower, but that being said, <coughs> that being said, theory is important because we have to learn what's been done, what's been tried, what went wrong, what went right, how to build on that. And that being said, I think that we need to learn not just from, you know, more hardline communists, like right now, obviously we're reading mouse. So that's kind of the discussion, but um, there's a lot you can learn from anarchists as well. I mean, look at their cell structures. They're almost impossible to uh, infiltrate. And um, that's probably going to be pretty, pretty important in any sort of revolution in a, in a hyper police state like, like we're in right now. Um, but you, you, can never, you can never talk down to the people. You always have to meet them where they're at. But you also have to correct bad behaviors, and there, there's kind of a there's a fine line there. You don't want to tell people what to think, but you also can't stand for you know racist rhetoric or um, otherwise hateful rhetoric. So I, I mean, there there is a balance, and this whole thing, Marxism is a science. If you haven't figured that out through our conversations yet. Um, First and foremost, I think Marxism is a, a lens in which you observe the world around you. Um, but more than that, it's a scientific method, figuring out why societies do the things they do and how to push it in a forward thinking direction instead of allowing regression. You know, a lot of, a lot of philosophers simply want to observe the world and be like, oh, this is what's wrong. Marx is one of the few that was like, and here's how we fix it. Um, but it's a science, so I mean, as we go on and on and on, there's more and more work that needs to be done um, in figuring out what's right and what's wrong. That was kind of long-winded, but <laughs> I got there eventually. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, I, I skipped the rest of the quote that I was in. I just wanted to say that he, he also clarified that we can't fall the party can't be like pushing a uh, regressive agenda, you know, compared to the population. Yes, you have to meet people where they are, but if the people advance, the party needs to advance with them. Um, and and basically, he said that in three paragraphs. So <laughs> I just shortened that up quite a bit. But anyway, moving forward, take the ideas of the masses and concentrate them. Then go to the masses, persevere in the ideas, and carry them through so as to form correct ideas of leadership. This is the basic method of leadership. In all the practical work of our party, all correct leadership is necessarily from the masses to the masses, 
This means take the ideas of the masses, uh, meaning scattered and unsystematic ideas, and concentrate them through study, turn them into concentrated and systematic ideas. Then go to the masses and propagate and explain these ideas until the masses embrace them as their own, hold fast to them and translate them into action, test the correctness of these ideas in action, then once again concentrate ideas from the masses and once again go to the masses so the ideas are persevered. So it's a continual theory of knowledge like I was just talking about. I guess if I would have read the next paragraph, I wouldn't have even had to go on the spiel that I did. Such is the Marxist theory of knowledge. <laughs> um, we should go to the masses and learn from them, synthesize their experience into better articulated principles and methods, then do propaganda among the masses and then call upon them to put these principles and methods into practice so as to solve their problems and help them achieve liberation and happiness. Uh, there are people in our leading organs in some places who think that, isn't, that it is enough for the leaders alone to know the party's policies and that there is no need to let the masses know them. This is one of the basic reasons why some of our work cannot be done well. That's also what led to purges in the party um, that probably weren't carried out in a very great way. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about that at some other point, though. In all mass movements, we must make a basic investigation and analysis of the number of active supporters, opponents, and neutrals, and must not decide problems subjectively and with, uh, without basis. Meaning, if there's a mass movement, look into what's going on. Don't just be like, oh, this has a lot of support. It's right. Trump had a lot of support. He wasn't fucking right. <clears throat> anyway. The masses in any given place are generally composed of three parts. The relatively active, the intermediate, and the relatively backward. The leaders must therefore be skilled in uniting the small number of active elements around the leadership and must rely on them to raise the level of the intermediate elements, elements sorry, and to win over the backward elements. And I think that's a big part of where we're at um, in the Green Party right now, ultimately. Um, or, I mean, the movement for Black Lives, for that matter, is pretty in that spot right now, too. They're trying to, which, I mean, some of us uh, white allies have already been doing this, but they're, they're actually saying, like, hey, white silence is violence. If you're an ally to this, then call out your racist uncle at Thanksgiving. You know, this is, we, we, we need to fight back against the backward elements. And I think that America as a whole is slowly but surely drifting in that direction. Anyway, to be good at translating the party's policy into action of the masses, to be good at getting not only the leading cadres, but also the broad masses to understand and master every movement and every struggle we launch. This is an art of Marxist-Leninist leadership. It is also the dividing line that determines whether or not we make mistakes in our work. Um, however active the leading group may be, its activity will amount to fruitless effort by a handful of people unless combined with the activity of the masses. On the other hand, if the masses alone are active without a strong leading group or organize their activity properly, such activity cannot be sustained for long or carried forward in the right direction or raised to a high level. Uh, Don's mom was saying that in the comment, we need a strong leading group. We need a unity. We need something to unite behind. I am conflicted on this because 
my personal philosophy is one that sort of is is a little bit antithetical to the democratic centralization that occurred in Marxist-Leninist societies in the past. Um, I think that we should be striving more towards a a delegatory democracy uh, that starts at you know the communal level and works up with a, essentially a flip of the way power works here. So instead of having our largest uh, geographical uh, confederations or councils or Congress, whatever you want to call it, having the most amount of power, we want to put that power back in localized hands. And so I have some issues with uh, the, the Maoist framing of the masses as being separate from those in the party. Um, I think it, and, and there's, there are post-leftists, you know, people who are sort of in the new left uh, that, that criticized Marxist-Leninists for this sort of, um, this sort of framing in a lot of their ideas. And so I think as we move into the new century and, and, and the evolution of Marxism and anarchism and, and left ideologies, I think we really need to look more into how we can get back to the original uh, Hellenic idea of the polis and and participatory democracy by everybody in a society rather than putting faith in a in a vanguard party which uh you know historically has has made gains but has has ultimately been a failure long term yes they have but they have made the largest advances in material conditions um out of any attempted revolution so i mean i think that there's a place for i think that we should learn from it I think that the kind of kind of centralized bottom-up organizing that you're talking about is a necessary evolution of this. See, with Mao, it was a little more, uh, you know, talking about how the masses and the party need to be integrated and need to be hand in hand was kind of a departure from the Lenin uh, from Lenin's perspective on the matter, which kind of did create a separation between um, the party and the masses. Uh, to a point where I think it was ultimately detrimental to the success of the USSR. At least Mao and his comrades tried to level that out. I think there's still a lot of work to be done, um, but I think instead of a vanguard party per se, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a vanguard party, I think that we need to question whether or not that's the right idea, but I think we do need vanguard media. Um, I do think that we need vanguard education, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Um, but I don't know if a Marxist-Leninist centralized democracy is the way to go or not. Um, if there's enough checks and balances in it, if there's enough horizontal organizational technique in it, I could see it working. But if it's not horizontal, I don't want it, frankly. <laughs> um, but I think that we need to, I think, I think that they were trying to move, especially if you consider the conditions in China in the 40s or the conditions in Russia in 1917, they were coming out of brutal imperial times. Um, and they, they had no real even flirtation with bourgeois democracy. So for, for this system to come out of China uh, in the 1940s, I think is, is a significant departure from what Chinese culture was before that. 
Um, so I agree with what you're saying, but keep in keep in mind the context of what where these ideas came from. Yeah, definitely, and I, and I think I, I'm thinking more in terms of like, okay, what can we learn from what maybe didn't go so great here that the conditions being different in the 21st century for us organizing, how can we how can we take some of those issues and rework some of the the inner bones to make it more democratic, more egalitarian, uh, more of a better idea of what we're looking for in practice, which, you know, thankfully we're seeing, you know, more uh, anti-state, you know, direct democratic projects happen. They're small, you know, you have like the Zapatistas, you've got Rojava, um, a few other little projects in, in, in that sort of direct participatory democracy. Um, but they're very recent, you know? I mean, uh, Abdullah Ocalan was arrested in, what was it, 1999 in Kenya, right as his sort of uh, political change from Marxist-Leninist guerrilla to sort of a more uh, democratic confederalist change was happening. Um, and so we really have only started to see uh, the smallest bits of, of human societies really exploring that again after like thousands of years of, of really hierarchical and, and dominating in environments. Yeah. In, in, in terms of, of how we can implement socialism in the United States, I think that we should, again, look at indigenous cultures. Um, I mean, you know, they did have their, their elders and their leadership, but it wasn't... Every, everything in their culture is very intertwined and it's very community-based. And we've somehow gotten away from that as, you know, colonized peoples. And um, I don't know, I still struggle with that. Like for me, living in a hyper-capitalist system the, my entire life, it's hard for me to imagine what a life what a what a society beyond capitalism might look like and um i think that there are some significant failures in marxist leninist states but i think that they've done more than any other state apparatus to improve the material conditions of their people on a on a massive scale in a short amount of time i mean specifically if you look at cuba they went from what like a like a 38% literacy rate to a 97% literacy rate in five years. That's, that's impressive. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think, you know, classical Marxism and like scientific socialism as some people like to call it, you know, I think it certainly has its place in, in leftist ideology. My, my gripe and some people's gripe in the, in the green world and especially the, the social ecology world is that, you know, the, the dialectical materialist view of things is a little bit reductionist. Uh, you know, it's, we're, we're talking about um, these class conflicts and, and how that affects how our society is going, but we're not talking about, you know, the issue of, of power and hierarchy and domination, especially, you know, over, uh, between between human beings and and between humans in our environment and how we've got to a point where we've become so disconnected and and really are working towards a a in a capitalist society what what is essentially the reverse of what life wants to do right we start out as as the simplest sort of organisms that uh adapt and change and become more complex and diverse in in biodiversity and and what capitalism is doing and 
is is really reversing that process. It's making our culture much more simplified. It's making our biodiversity much more simplified. It's taking, uh, you know, a lot of the the diverse evolutionary changes out of our our first nature, just evolutionary society, and is really just seeing them as resources to be exploited. So, and, and we don't have that quite as much in like modern Marxist circles right there is at least a little bit of a nod to like okay maybe ecology isn't such a bourgeois liberal thing to worry about like it might actually be an issue um but you know i agree on the on the on the concrete of marxist leninist states in the past having increased people's materials conditions in a rapid period of time which is great i think it does leave out other issues that we need to address if we if we're talking about total intersectional liberation of people planet and peace right does that make sense yeah. oh yeah yeah that, that totally makes sense i do i do have concerns about a about a complete you know like okay so like a complete what's the word i'm looking for committal to nonviolence. um i do think that there are instances where violence is the only answer um is especially when it comes to fascist states um yeah I, I mean where would where would the the jews in germany have been um in 1945 had the red army not came and liberated the camps i think there's a difference between a pursuit of nonviolence and something like self-defense or defensive of of a you know a marginalized or weaker population you know right and i think right. there are of greens uh in the u.s who have who have i read something recently a while back from a green here um who's an indigenous woman that uh talked about the difference between our pillar of nonviolence and peace and how you know the self-defense like is not really included in that because we as already majority marginalized communities who are part of the leftist broader left network um are constantly on the receiving end of violence and and coercion from from states and from uh you know uh, white supremacist culture that we live in um and you know i personally i think that where possible obviously we should try and seek resolution through nonviolent means we should try and get the most amount of consensus out of society as we can however that does not mean that we're going to stand aside and let marginalized populations be you know treated cruelly or violently okay yeah and that's that's the, essentially what i was getting at it's so. sort of like tolerance paradox right like do you tolerate intolerance does a non-violent person tolerate violence against somebody else right my thought is no do no harm but take no shit uh I, okay, so I, we're, we're coming close to the end of this chapter, I think. Are we? Yeah, yeah, we're on the last page of it. Oh, shit. I spilled too far. What did I do? Um, I'm just gonna, like, like, grab a couple nuggets out of what's left. Um... Natalie said, I think socialism slash communism so far has ended up as a dictatorship and it's not what it was meant to be as dictatorship ends up harming the masses. I think that it's also important to note, though, that in this lingo, we already live in a dictatorship. 
It's just the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Um, whereas they were trying to implement a dictatorship of the proletariat, which comes from the view that a state ultimately is a dictatorship one way or another. So instead of having a dictatorship for business interests, as we would call it in this country, or the bourgeoisie, as they would call it traditionally, um, the idea is to kind of, you know, put the put the working class at an advantage. Uh, and, I, and I do think that while in the USSR, I think it was more of a case of bureaucracy, uh, which ended up harming the masses and the party being a separate entity from the masses was ultimately harming to the masses. And we see in Mao's writings that he tried to he tried to tackle some of these issues and I'm sure as we go deeper down the rabbit hole and read uh, you know more about what Fidel Castro and his men did and what Thomas Sankara and his men did I think that we're going to see that as time goes on they try to correct more and more of these wrongs there's always going to be mistakes but the, the thing that I think that some communist states have really struggled with is learning from those mistakes willing to be like hey we were wrong in fixing the issue instead they just tend to stick to it and be like no we're right um and that is in and of itself separating the party from the people so um there's a lot of improvement that can happen uh but that's the whole point though if, if you look at the the structure of the black panthers and how they operated in their communities i don't think that you would think it was that similar to you know like the setup of the chinese government uh but yeah that's literally what it was based in it was just adapted um to the material conditions of a uh, of a black man or a black woman in uh american society and i think that the further from Marx directly that we get, the more that we get uh, intersectionality coming into a role. I mean, like I'm a diehard Marxist and I think that class is an issue in almost everything that we face, but I'm not trying to reduce it to just class. It's where class meets race, class meets gender, class meets identity, um, and any other variation or intersections of those, those issues. And um, I think that that's something that they probably didn't understand in China in 1945. I don't, I don't think that they understood that trans men were men and trans women were women and that non-binary was a thing. Granted, I could be completely mistaken. I don't know what the views on gender in Chinese society are, but I assume that much like ours in the West, that it's a patriarchal society. Um, and they did try to involve not not right at the beginning here but they did try to involve later on women specifically in the party so i think that as i was saying <laughs> i digress i think uh, that the farther away you get from marx himself the more intersectionality comes to play and for that matter we also have to look at the critiques of uh of marxist states um I'm not saying that we need to look at the critiques of a, of a hardcore liberal capitalist. Maybe it might not hurt to take a look at them, but primarily what I'm thinking is we need to look at critiques of Marxist-Leninist states from other socialists and anarchists who were there and felt not represented by the party. And I think that we need to take 
this this more than anything i think that we need to take lessons from marxists critiquing other marxists because there's a long history of that um anyway it's our favorite pastime is critiquing each other <laughs> <laughs> right exactly so i mean like i don't think that we're ever going to fully agree on anything in terms of you know like the divide between anarchists and marxists but you want to know what we do agree that capitalism is the fucking problem and that with capitalism in place especially as it is here today that we're not going to ever get to a point where it's going to be capital or I mean, anarchists versus communists. It's never going to get to that point in the United States if capitalism is still the ruling system. Um, so I think, I guess what I'm trying to get at in a long roundabout way is that Marxist-Leninism is probably the biggest tool we have in dismantling capitalism. That doesn't mean it's the end-all be-all. That doesn't mean that, that Marxist-Leninists have all the answers. But it's a very good way to throw a wrench in the machine, so to speak. Because, I mean, if you think about it, a lot of what the USSR did in the early days, they were just literally experimenting, throwing wrenches into capitalism <laughs> capitalism, and figuring out what worked. Um, I think a good way to think of it is, like, you know, uh, we have the most data for this particular approach to socialism right you know what i mean yeah it's like we can see the effects that have happened in here more so than we can see theoretical government or lack thereof uh that is more common in like anarchist and like post-left sort of uh additions to to marxist you know dialectical materialism and things that came in the past so i think uh for right now, this data set is like the best we got, but we're still tweaking and we're still learning and seeing what happens next. It is it is very much a, a science of society building, you know? It's 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 a complex thing that takes a long time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean shit, if you if you look at just the experiment in Russia, that took seventy years to figure out what was happening. Um and to figure out that it was too flawed to carry on in it in that form. And then we had Mao, and then we had Castro, and then we had Sankara. And uh, and that's completely ignoring Fred Hampton or Bobby Seale or the Black Panther Party in general. They drew so heavily from Mao, and until I started actually reading Mao, I never would have pieced that together on my own. I mean, like, on the surface, they seem about as far away from that type of system as you, you know, like, they weren't, they weren't a dictatorship uh, by any means, but they were a dictatorship of the proletariat by their own definition. They were just coming about it from a completely different angle than had been done before. And I think that's important to look at, too. How can we adapt these to, to the material conditions in the U.S.? And I think that the best place to start is with the Black Panther Party. Um, I think that they had a lot of anarchist tendencies. Uh, I guess that's really all I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, last couple of quotes for um, the night, and then we'll move on to... Uh, I think all we have left is LGBTQ news. But production by the masses, the interests of the masses, the experiences and feelings of the masses. To these, the leading cadre should pay constant attention. 
I don't like the way it's worded. I think that the, 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 the sentiment is important, but I don't like the way it's worded. The cadre should pay attention. The cadre should be involved. There should be no leadership above the masses. Um, and that's something that you already had alluded to. Um, and, and then the, the first sentence of the next paragraph is worded the same way. We should pay close attention to. No, you should be in, you should be in it. Uh, from the problems of land and labor to those of fuel, rice, cooking oil, and salt. All such problems concerning the well-being of the masses should be on our agenda. We should discuss them, adopt and carry out decisions, and check upon the results. We should help the masses to realize that we represent their interests, that our lives are intimately bound uh, with theirs. We should help them to proceed from these things to an understanding of the higher tasks which we have put forward, the task of the Revolutionary War, so that they will support the revolution and spread it throughout the country, respond to our political appeals, and fight to the end for victory of the revolution. And that is the end of chapter 11, The Mass Life. Uh, I think we already had a pretty good uh, discussion part for this segment, too. I kind of wonder what happened to uh, Trisha. It's showing she's still there, but she ain't said anything in a while. Um, actually, there was a couple other things. A police officer in Oregon was uh, charged for failing to arrest an off-duty officer uh, for attacking a home with a Black Lives Matter flag. We don't even have to click in the, this article to be like, oh, wow, something good happened, finally. And uh, this, this is the combating fascism section. The other one, the headline is, no, James Clyburn, we cannot compromise with the system that protects killer cops. We've already talked about the whole Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter thing tonight, so I don't really want to dive too deep into it, but Black Lives Matter should not be a controversial fucking statement. Um, and no, we should not compromise with the system that protects killer cops. Dean worded it as... Chauvin is like the sacrificial lamb, right? It's showing that the system is just, but Chauvin's a bad guy. That's not the case. The system is unjust, and Chauvin's a bad guy. Um, so that's pretty much all I have to say on that. Um, but if Trisha's not there, I don't even have anything to say on LGBTQ news. I knew she, I know she had something she wanted to talk about, but if she's not there, I don't know what it is. I, I'm here. I oh. need a moment. I'm, I'm dealing with the situation right now. I did ah. mess with the, um, sorry, give me a um, check your You said it's in the chat? the group chat I sent it to you directly oh okay okay ah okay so uh weightlifter Laurel Hubbard said to be the first trans athlete ever at the Olympics wow I thought that the Olympics uh the, the Olympic board was still trying to ban transgender athletes so that's really good news um 
they changed their standards where now if you've been um, under hormone therapy for at least 12 months and your testosterone levels are, you know, within a certain range, then you are allowed to compete. Um, and I, I, I like the way that they're addressing that because it's actually your hormone levels that affect your muscle mass, etc., which is the main thing that, you know, a lot of people who are against allowing trans people into sports are complaining because, you know, they think they can't compete with some. Um, it's an insecurity all the fucking way. But, uh, anyway, uh, I think it's a great way to... Did we lose you? I think we lost her. Um... The Australian Weightlifting Federation chief executive is saying a man is a man and a woman is a woman. Uh. Um. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm back. <laughs> um, <laughs> I lost signal again. That's been happening this whole time, um, which is why I had myself muted there. Um, but anywho, uh, I think this is a standard that... Uh, could be put into place everywhere else where people are like oh my god what what are we gonna do motherfuckers we're talking about sports let people enjoy themselves and do what they do and if you want to have regulations surrounding it here look at someone's hormone levels that is actually what is more determinant in that situation than what they were born with yeah, true. I mean, I kind of tend to side on Emily's stance on this, right? Like, I mean, she grew up in high school, or she grew up in high school. She went through high school playing sports, and she always preferred, you know, like the outside of school co-ed leagues because it was more of a challenge. I think that, frankly, we need to get gender the hell out of sports. Let people enjoy themselves. Leave it at that. Also, the, the idea of I have a problem with the idea of compromising with the notion that trans people shouldn't be allowed in sports um, through something like testing their hormone levels because there are plenty of cishet women who naturally have higher testosterone levels. The same is true for cishet males who some have higher estrogen levels. So I think, you know, if we're going to make that case, let's take it to the to its logical conclusion. Uh, like, Michael Phelps is, you know, fucking eight feet tall and is built like a, a literal merman. Like, do we stop someone who has a genetic advantage from competing in a sport they might be better suited for? Man, they're to trying to take away his gold medals because he smoked pot. <laughs> but you get what I'm saying. It's like, we can't... I would like to see a world where, like, if we're going to do this thing about separating classes in sports, do it like wrestling does. Weight classes. That's that right. Too, man. That, yeah, that works, too. Yeah, have I, mean, I would much up. rather see that than... Uh, I mean, honestly, I, I'm glad to see some forward progress at the Olympics. That's a lot more than I expected out of them. But right, and, and in comparison to some of the shit that I've seen passed by states, as far as oh, we want to do a physical inspection of looking at your fucking genitals, that's pedophilic, uh, motherfucker. Um, you know, so I would much, much rather so. be like, let's do 
blood work if we're going to do anything but honestly sports it's it's a fucking game let people have fun i grew up with people of you know all genders competing on our teams at my high school like i'm i'm one of the people who you know they were trying to get to join what was quote unquote initially the boys wrestling team but it became co-ed when I was in, I think, middle school, you know, like if, if you're good at a sport, play that sport with everybody who plays that sport. It shouldn't fucking matter what genitals you have. Well said. Thank you. Just another stoned rant. <laughs> one that has, um, it's, there's a need for it. <laughs> there's a need for it because motherfuckers take sports way too fucking seriously and want to stop people from doing what they do and having fun and fucking enjoying themselves because those people who have a problem with it are insecure and they're afraid to lose. That's a them problem, not a we problem. Yeah, absolutely. Um... Natalie said exactly, there is still so much to be done for justice of any oppressed people. And to that, I say solid fucking darity. Um, so does anybody have anything to say in closing? I mean, we're going on three and a half hours at this point. I think it's probably time to wrap it up. <coughs> like, Cody, do you wanna do you wanna plug like the website for the National Caucus or the State Caucus or any events that we have coming up or so on and so forth yeah uh so you can find uh the national caucus uh yesgp.org slash join uh the state youth caucus if you want to get involved you're between the ages of 14 and 35 Uh, our website is www.yesgpaz.org uh twitter instagram and facebook are all variations of at yesgp underscore az we're not hard to find uh, the branding is is pretty on point thanks to our media comm chair he's doing a great job um other than that you know uh thanks to y'all for having me on you know it was great to to discuss uh, a lot of these issues and it was uh awesome to sort of give a, a young eco-socialist viewpoint on that and yeah I am a, an aging young eco-socialist. It, it's actually kind of funny at our meetings and stuff, because, you know, like, at 30, I feel like, you know, like an awkward uncle or something. You're, <laughs> you know, it, you're like, a, a young at heart eco-socialist. <laughs> uh, oh, well, I still got five years in the caucus. Maybe we'll get some shit done by then. <laughs> um, so we do have a patreon we in this case meaning for we are many um patreon.com slash for we are many um well that's okay there we go uh we are all over social media we have our facebook page we have the for we are many support group which is made by the page so it shouldn't be hard to find from the page we also have the for we are many mutual aid organizing group which, Cody, I didn't get a chance to talk to you about that. If you know of any mutual aid projects going on in the area, drop it in the mutual aid organizing group and just, you know, like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Facebook topics feature, but they're hashtags. So just put like hashtag Arizona or hashtag Phoenix and post it in there. Uh, we're just trying to, you know, like, encourage other people to get involved is the main thing. Um, we're on Twitter, at For We Are Many Two. 
Instagram for We Are Many Podcasts, TikTok for We Are Many Podcasts, YouTube for We Are Many Podcasts, for We Are Many Podcasts at gmail.com, and uh, www.forwearemany.org. Natalie said, Cody, thanks for speaking up tonight. Sounds like a group we need your generation to get things done. Sounds like a group we need your generation can get things done. There we go. Sorry. That was difficult. Um, Thursday night at 8 Eastern time, we will be doing our uh, watch along of the movie Milk. It's on Netflix. It's about Harvey Milk. Um, This was a recommendation from Dean. uh, So we've kind of been planning this for a little bit. I, I thought it was Dean no, that brought it up. I'm the one that brought this one up. Huh. It was Dean that brought up Harvey Milk and you brought up the movie. That's what it was. But yeah, so it was Trisha's I idea. What, I forget what the conversation was, but it made me think of Harvey Milk and I'm like, oh, Oh, as far as them trying to ban discussing the existence of LGBTQ people in school. And I was like, wait a fucking minute, because, you know, we got students out here who need to be learning about epic motherfuckers who change the face of the society like Harvey motherfucking Milk. Or like Eugene Debs. How many fucking history books you heard Eugene Debs name in? Right, none. None. Which, but, uh, Cody, you know, we did a we did a piece on Eugene Debs. I recommend you check it out at some point if you have time. Definitely, yeah. But um, yeah, with Harvey Milk, he was the first out gay man elected to office in this country. He was in uh, San Francisco, California, and the things he did, not just fighting for LGBTQ rights, but uniting the entire left, fighting for every facet of, you know, every group that has been oppressed for any fucking reason, whether it be your class, your ethnicity, your sexuality, across the board, he brought the left together in a really fucking beautiful manner his career lasted a total of 11 months before he was assassinated but in that time he he changed the face of this society because that that was the first of getting somebody who was actually from our community elected into an office and actually working actively to improve the lives of not just gay people but every fucking buddy who's been getting shit on and it was beautiful he's an, he was an amazing person just i find him in, inspiring you know um so anywho we'll, we'll get to that on thursday but that that excitement that just came out of me that's what you can see. <laughs> that being said um i will not be there for the entire stream because i have a meeting of that for the Ufico socialists but I will be there before it and uh, yeah that's all okay <laughs> but um, I'm gonna I'm gonna finish the movie anyway because um, I should have I was just gonna watch it anyway because we were originally gonna do it last Thursday and I was gonna be at work yeah Natalie said, I hope Cody will come back sometime. He has some very good insights and ideas. I agree. I'd be happy to. Awesome. 
Well, I mean, just let us know when. And for that matter, um, I'm going to bring this up Thursday as well. But I mean, honestly, I feel comfortable with having anybody in our state caucus come on here because I don't I don't think we have any bigots or racists hiding in there. If, if they did, uh... they, they would be weeded out. well it's one of those things where you know before we all can really come to the table together sometimes we got to clean our own house first yeah you know yeah Um, absolutely yep anywho there was something i was gonna say but it floated off into the ether so i guess i'll just say this was a good conversation. Thank you for joining us, Cody. And everyone yeah. who love to have you back. Yeah, thank you so much to you know the whole team for having me. It was great to be here. Uh, you, Rob's obviously a friend as one of my colleagues at the Young Eco Socialists. Uh, this was great. I had a lot of fun, and yeah, anytime you'd have me back, I'm happy to come on. That's awesome. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us. See you on Thursday. Okay, I hit stop live stream.